Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, and skeptic. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This isn't your grandma's RIA. No sales from the front ever. And no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done, and I pick their brain for your amusement and hopefully education. If you enjoy this podcast, please give it a like and share it across the internet. It really does help. If you have any questions or suggestions, please leave a comment and or send me a message. Go to renegadedetroit.com, renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in the local meetings, Go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or go to facebook.com Detroit Investment Club. Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. If you want to follow me, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. And if you prefer, hello YouTube, you can watch this at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. Legal disclaimer, because this is America, it's the world we live in. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests Say, be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment or investment decision, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Show quote of the week. Every week I try and pick a show quote that not only fits with the guest, but also hopefully sets the tone for the rest of your week. And I picked this one because I know James would love it. Never, never, never. Give Up by Winston Churchill. Never, never, never give up. Winston Churchill. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to my guest, Mr. James Danley. James Danley is an entrepreneur, real estate investor, and the president of Luxury Updated Homes, LLC. He graduated from the University of Michigan-Dearborn in January 2010. He was the president of SIFE, which was Students in Free Enterprise, where he was influential in orchestrating several projects with Goldman Sachs, Walgreens, and Young Detroit Builders. James was also involved in the creation of EE Academy and the Entrepreneurial Mentoring Council. For those of you interested, Luxury Updated Homes LLC creates beautifully updated residential housing in desirable areas of Metro Detroit. Through strategic acquisitions, streamlined renovations, and sharp attention to detail, Luxury Updated Homes LLC provides homeowners with high-quality, well-designed homes in high-demand locations. Please go to LuxuryUpdatedHomes.com, LuxuryUpdatedHomes.com, or you can reach out at 734-308-0109. This is obviously in Metro Detroit, Michigan, worldwide listeners. Thank you, James, for coming down today and agreeing to, uh, to do this. I'm really excited about this. You got a good radio voice, bud. I like this. Do I? Yeah. Good brain too in the beginning. Love it. Fun stuff. Lots of practice now. This is is episode (laughs) number 13. If you want to improve quickly, record everything you say and then go back and listen to it. You'll hear all the ums, uts, whats. I was breathing too heavy. (sighs) Further away. I'm worried about that. I'm afraid I'm going to see this later and and kick myself for it. But yeah, don't worry. Whatever mistake you made, I've already made it 10 times and probably worse. So uh, (laughs) you got that going. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my good friend, James Danley from Luxury Updated Homes. Jeremy, I appreciate you having me, man. We had fun today. I'm pretty excited about this. So so what James does is he 
He likes big. He likes thinking big. He likes big projects. I think you did a new construction in Birmingham where you bladed the whole thing, right? And would you sell that one for? We've got a few. So yeah, we've, I mean, we've been flipping for a handful of years. <clears throat> you know that. Um, but th- this year we did the first full new construction where it made more sense to maximize value on that specific piece of real estate to just tear down the existing structure, build new. And it was great proximity to downtown. I knew that the location was phenomenal. And uh, we pre-sold it for $1.2 million, And the buyers paid cash. Cash. No mortgage yeah. there, right? No mortgage, no difficulties. Close in 15 days. Done. <laughs> and how old are you, sir? Uh, 29 round two. 29 round two. I technically turned 30 this year, but I'm in denial. <laughs> <laughs> so a relatively young man. I've known you for a long time. And I just wanted to get everybody all hot and bothered about that uh, so they can stick around. So real fast, I'm, I, I have like my pet peeve. I love that Winston Churchill quote, but it's always shortened to the abbreviated version. And the real, the real, real version, that's what I was looking for on my phone here. I'll update was, it too. Uh, it was never, never, and nothing greater, small, larger, petty, never give in. Accept convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And as we know, the context of that was, you know, World War II era. Fucking he gets Nazi up, Germany. He gets up to give a speech at graduation. I forget which university it was. Probably some pathetic. And they were expecting a long-winded speech, and that was his response. <clears throat> and it always gets shorted, shortened to never, never give up, but... That was the actual full quote, and then he walked off stage. I will go through, and I will update that. Actually, can you email that to me? Yes, You're I all can. doing it right there, because thank you. I appreciate that. I knew you would I'll like t- I'll it. I'll text it to you. I'll text so that, it to you. Just so you know, James Danley drives around with a car with a license plate that says, never quit. <laughs> so when I was trying to pick a show quote of the week, I wanted to make it an appropriate quote for my, my guest as well. Speaking of which... You come from small, humble beginnings, a Michigan lad downriver, Taylor Tucky, right? Uh, Brownstown, Gibraltar, really close to Taylor, yep. All right, Brownstown. Yep. What was what was James' early life like? Were you always going to be an entrepreneur, or, or what did it look like? So <clears throat> I will admit, I, you know, I was blessed with uh, the foundational aspects of life and that I had, like, good parents. I get good parents, good family, good upraising, which makes a big difference in opportunities and what you can do, but... The area I did grow up in was very blue collar. So uh, downriver is blue collar automotive, like line worker type atmosphere, small neighborhoods, small, small housing or construction. So the majority of my buddies did not go to college. Um, I didn't know anyone who was wealthier, affluent growing up, didn't know anyone that was in business. It was kind of like the blue collar mentality and union mentality of of uh, people would brag about who got paid the most money to do the least amount of work, right? Yeah. The work ethic wasn't all that great with like the union mentality that was going on when I was younger. So it was weird because you'd see like a lot of the, my buddies and their dads, like they'd brag about being at home on leave for like three months and getting paid, you know, to sit at home from which is insane their union contracts, which makes no sense. It's and insane. It doesn't seem honorable at all. But, no, it's not. Um, that was kind of the environment I grew up in. And um, I had good family, good grandparents. We go, I had a good balance, I think when I was younger. So not only did I live, I lived in the suburbs, but we had woods all around us. So as a kid, we can go build forts and explore stuff like that, which is always good for, for growth. And then, uh, I had grandparents who had a farm in Ohio and they had property in Kentucky. So I would go down there often, learn great work ethic, work on the farms. Um, and my parents got me involved in, in uh, boy scouts at a very young age. And they, they taught me, you know, when you start something, you gotta follow through on it. And when I joined scouts, I had to follow through and I had to get Eagle 
And when you get in your teens, it gets less cool. You Absolutely. think about quitting and uh, that wasn't an option. It was, For hey, you reason, committed this, finish it up, and then knock out the badges, and then you can be done. Girls don't like Eagle Scouts. Why is that? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I didn't end depends on how you, did it. It depends on how you sell it, I think. I, I think you <laughs> sold it better than I did. <laughs> it's all about sales. <laughs> Even from an early age. Yeah, so you grew up in Get a, a desert of entrepreneurialism and a sea of labor party, auto manufacturing, ditch digging, a bit, basically a lot of blue collar stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I, I changed schools a lot when I was younger. My parents tried to get me the best education possible. I, you know, I was homeschooled for a while. Then I went to a chartered school. Then I went to a private school, Well, the private school didn't finish all the way through, through high school. So I ended up, um, transferring from the private school to a public school for the last three years of high school. And in that, that's really when you're getting prepped for college, right? In those last few years of high school. Oh yeah. Soft. And, and the, the options that we had no business classes, no education on business. It was, you know, if you want to go to college, you can, you can study, become a doctor or an attorney, or you can be a garbage man or work construction, you know, like it, it was very, very basic and there wasn't a lot of good career planning or coaching there. So I, I just knew that I had to go to college. It was expected. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I figured engineers made good money and I liked electronic stuff. So, Hey, maybe I'll go be an electric electrical engineer. Oh God. And so I ended up going to Lawrence tech. I got good grades, had a good scholarship, went to school there and, um, I hated it. It was, it was brutal. So the first couple of years at, at school, I did, didn't fit my skill sets, did not enjoy it. And so, and I, I, I felt lost though, cause I didn't know what the other options were. Like in my mind, I'd grown up in this bubble where all you do is you, you, you go to work, work a job, you know, five, six days a week. And then you live usually five days a week. And then you live for the weekends. That's kind of like what the blue collar attitude was like. And they make as much money as they can. So they can blow their money on boats or whatever for the weekends and, and have fun. But you live kind of a, a weekend type lifestyle and you just work a job to pay the bills and it's this lifestyle of mediocrity with not a lot of upside or growth potential or planning or strategy or any of that stuff. And, uh, so at Lawrence tech, the first couple of years, I, I just, I, I could do the math, I could do the material, but I literally hated it. And I could not envision myself like spending five, six days a week for the rest of my life working this mundane oh, engineering God, yeah. type job that just gave me no fulfillment. Ugh. And so I ended up, I, you know, I skipped classes. I, I had to retake Calc three a couple times, ended up, uh, my GPA plummeted. I, I didn't attend class as much as I should. I was screwing around, lost my scholarships, got kicked out of my fraternity for GPA reasons. They kicked you out. They kicked me out. Yep. What kind of fraternity was this? Uh, we had the best GPA on campus and it was important to keep the average up. And you were marketing. pulling them down, James. I was pulling them down. They tried to work with me. I didn't have a lot of solutions because I, I struggled with the material, didn't really like it. And so I ended up getting put on uh, suspension, essentially, and um, was, was ousted, couldn't come to events and stuff like that for a year. And then I pretty much, from when that happened, I cut ties. Yeah, at that point, your yeah. motivation was probably so low. Did you ever do calculus-based physics? I don't know if we, I don't think I had that. Yeah, that destroyed me. I could, you want to talk about being able to do something, but hating yourself afterwards. <laughs> that's, that's what calculus-based physics was for me. Like, dear God, why? If that doesn't make you, you either love it or you question everything about why you're there. <laughs> we have that common ground. I remember that in heat, um, thermodynamics. When I took thermodynamics, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like, oh. this is, 
I don't know. I felt like I was dying. So you felt Brutal suffocated. In, oh, absolutely. In, yeah. Like you're being strangled slowly mm-hmm. and calling like, what am I going to do? How'd you figure out what to do, man? So there were two things that happened in my life that changed my perspective. The one was I had a roommate in college who grew up a little more affluent. He was like, hey, have you ever been to Oakland County or like Bloomfield Hills, Birmingham, which is only literally like 45 minutes to an hour from where I was born and raised and grew up, but I'd never been there. That's the affluent center of Michigan where all the business and economy is really built based. All the high profile executives live there, all the business owners, uh, athletes, everyone who really builds, moves, shakes the economy in this area are all in Oakland County. And so he took me up and drew, drove me through Bloomfield Hills. And there's just an unending amount of mansions and estates. Yeah. And just beautiful, these beautiful, handcrafted, gorgeous homes with such strong attention to detail, a level of sophistication that you just didn't see downriver. Like the mentality was different. So, like the downriver down mentality was you kind of skate by, barely maintain things. Not a lot of, pr- I mean, they, some people did have a good work ethic and had a good pride and pride of ownership. But it wasn't to the same level of detail as you see in the affluent communities where people really pay attention to the details. And that's one of the things that leads them to higher levels of success is they they are painstakingly focused on the details and on quality. And it, it blew my mind. And they, they were unending. And, and I realized – and at the same time, he took me there. Uh, I ended up picking up a business book in the middle of one of the summers that I think my mom had randomly ordered. And I was frustrated. It was probably two, two and a half years into college. I think it was right after I got kicked out of the fraternity. GPA was at an all-time low, lost scholarship funds, and I had to figure out what I was going to do. And that book was was Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which I'm sure all of your listeners have have read. But if not, they should. Yeah, absolutely. So that that book changed the paradigm that I lived in. My it showed me one that wealth was infinite; it's created. We print money and currency based on what human beings produce, and things we produce are based on resources from the ground and individual talents and skill sets of human beings. So you take those two things, you put them together, and we everything that we have in this life is built from those two things, clothing, housing, fabrics, technology, all of it, mental capacity from human beings, resources from the ground. And so I realized that wealth was infinite, and it was created by our own minds and by what we can do and accomplish. And that changed my entire life. Because then all of a sudden, it wasn't like, I was like, wait a minute, you're, so you're telling me I don't have to go work you know, 50, 80 hours a week at some mundane job my entire life, I can create, I can do anything I want. And that core concept changed my perspective on what was possible. And then I realized, I was like, what do all these wealthy individuals do as we're driving through Bloomfield Hills and in Birmingham? Like, what do these people do for a living? And then we started networking. So we started talking to business owners that own restaurants and um, anyone anyone that we, we saw that was affluent or successful started asking questions and finding out how they got there, what value systems they live by. And and that changed my perspective on life forever. You're looking for new software, basically. New software for the brain, a different way of processing information, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, something like you, you're Or like a filter. You were looking at life through... Blinders. I feel like yeah. I had blinders on from uh, where I grew I like up, that. and I, I did not see what was possible. And then those blinders were all of a sudden taken taken off, and there was opportunity everywhere. Yeah, I think Oakland County kind of bounces around, but it's always somewhere in the low to mid teens as far as the richest county in America. It's it's pretty it's near the very near the top of the list. Yeah, I think a lot of those studies though they focus on um, 
yearly income or salaries but instead of wealth ownership. Yeah. I think if they actually focused on wealth and holdings of assets, that number would probably be different. But Oakland County is an exceedingly wealthy county. Yes. Lots of business <clears throat> owners, lots of money, lots of houses, businesses, manufacturing, all that stuff. Oakland County. Very different <clears throat> from Wayne County, which Downriver is part of Wayne County for the listener Downriver. I don't know. I'm not originally from here. Why do they call it Downriver? That little trickle thing of a river, that little stream they call I a guess river. That could yeah. be that has to be it, yeah. It's like <laughs> southwest Detroit, but <clears throat> further south and further west and kind of follows the Detroit River a little bit. I, I don't know. Yeah, so they're all suburbs around Detroit, centered around Detroit. Oakland County happens to be northwest and that's where most of the wealthy and the affluent moved and developed um, you know, back in the day and then also after the racial riots in the sixties really Oakland County started booming because everyone was moving out of the city and in the suburbs again. But, um, and then down river was, you know, more middle-class blue collar manufacturing down on flat rock in those areas where all the automotive companies build, uh, build cars. So you made the leap at some point you said the heck mm-hmm. with Lawrence tech, the hell with electrical engineering is going to make my life miserable. I don't want Friday to be the best night of my life. And you decide to head towards business and you somehow ended up university of Michigan Dearborn. How did that happen? So to be honest, cause after my GPA wasn't all that great. Right. So to transfer to U of M surprisingly, I think the minimum requirement was not that high to transfer in GPA wise. And so I took some additional classes for a full semester <clears throat> classes that were mostly electives and stuff I wanted to take now that my focus was changing, had a four point, all of those to bring my average up and then was able to transfer over to uh, university of Michigan in Dearborn. And they had a good business curriculum at that point in time i uh was more focused on just getting somewhere else that had a business focus where i could build a a network and that the school i mean my degree says university of michigan so obviously the brand value is pretty good and they had access to a lot of resources but since it was a smaller um satellite campus the competition and access to those resources was less than it would have been if i was in ann arbor so i almost feel like i got more benefit going to the satellite school than i would have going to uh the main hub in ann arbor well, I remember that's right around the time that um, I met you and you struck me as a very well put together young man, way more put together than I was at that age. <laughs> but you were, you were doing things very intentionally. When, when we first met, you came to me, you had a plan for how you're going to make university work for you. Yeah, you had to go to all these classes, but you're like, I have a networking plan. I'm going to meet these people. I'm going to start a group. I'm going to. So talk about some of the plans you had <clears> when you could. I remember, at least to me, it seemed like you had a plan for everything. You weren't letting university come into you. You are going to university, and they were you were going to leave with what you needed. So once my, my perspective was changed, then I started seeing very clear, clearly like Rich Dad Poor Dad was only the beginning. After that, I realized that, that my skill sets – I mean, I believe that every individual, every human being that's created has value. We all have different – skill sets, different makeup in some way we can contribute to society. And, um, business happened to fit my skill sets. I love people, love negotiation, negotiation. Um, I love the visual aspects of real estate and the design elements of those that fit into my skill set. I tend to be a big picture thinker, macro scale guy, more vision, you know, details is not exactly my strong suit, but it's, you know, you have to work it into your strong suit. But so once I, changed my, my vision for life. Then I was building a plan very quickly on how to obtain and and create the life that I wanted. And I remember we did a lot of, when I started, when I met you, we talked a lot about that and, and goal planning visions. And 
and uh, daily visualization, all that stuff that goes into success that all the guys who are successful and that write these write books on success will attest to. And so I remember clearly seeing that plan and then reading as many books from great guys as I could like Kiyosaki and Trump and Napoleon Hill and all the, all those guys just stack the books up and reading everything I could about success, about life accomplishment, and then being able to create that vision and creating a plan for how to design and build the life that I, I wanted that I now recognize as being possible. Whereas before it wasn't. And from the outside looking in, you're building your power base for networking too. Remember, remember when you took me to the, <clears throat> was it the hockey game you took me to? I can't remember. Yeah. With you. I think yeah. It yeah. was. Yeah. You weren't going to see the hockey. Apparently you got the tickets, whatever. There's going to be a bunch of, uh, uh, high end people with networking or whatever. <laughs> you were so excited. You were telling me about it. Like you, that's what always struck me is you had a plan for everything. Like <clears throat> you weren't just doing anything. James Danley, the man, he had a plan. He was going to go somewhere. He was going to meet people. I bet I don't even know. Have you done business with any of those people yet, or they're still stacked up? Yeah, no. The no. Uh, Jim Vell, who took me, that's still a great, really good friend, personal mentor, um, great example in in my life as far as an individual who has had a very well balanced life of success and service. I mean, not only was he ultra successful in his career, but raised a great family, good kids, taught like volunteers his time to, to teach and give back at the University of Michigan. Um, was on the faculty, was on our board of directors for SAI for the student organization we built, gave us a great deal of access to excellent networking events, charity dinners, stuff that as students we wouldn't have had access to if it wasn't wasn't for him and um, his focus on giving back and teaching. But networking is huge and you read a lot of the books on it, mastermind groups and business network collaboration is uh, is key to success. And once I saw, I saw that I, I was so hungry just to learn from all these guys who had built great careers, who had built phenomenal lives. And, and, um, when I say success, I don't want it to be interpreted as just financial or business success, but the guys that I sought after and the majority of the ones that I've met that are successful, successful millionaires or multimillionaires, they live well-balanced lives. And so they're successful in their family lives. They have a great set of core values that gives them natural positive effects in in uh, in their business career and in their and in, in their business success. And um, their overall life, it's just they have the same time in every day as someone from downriver or like a blue collar area. But they accomplish so much more, and the lives of those around them that they impact is just, it's incredible to see. So I was so hungry to meet as many of those people as I could and say, Hey, how did you obtain success? Like, how did you, how did you go from nothing to making over a million dollars a year? How did you get there? What was your path? You know, and just asking questions and and listening and learning from all these guys makes all the difference in the world. So what did Saif, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to make sure students in free enterprise, did you start mm -hmm. that or did you take it over? No, no, no. So we, we started that uh, well, we, we, it just got started like a semester or two before I, I started at U of M, but it was floundering a little bit and the faculty that was involved in managing it was considering shutting that, that branch down. Now it was a larger worldwide organization that was massive, but this was just for our location there at, uh, the, the campus at university of Michigan Dearborn. So he, myself and one of my best friends, Fiore, how is he doing by the way? He's doing real well. Good. His his career is he's crushing it. Oh yeah, he's doing of course. Awesome. And anybody who runs an organization like this is what you weren't getting. I mean, 
that's pretty put together for a young man. You got to admit, right? Most people aren't doing that in college. So that's true. But the value was huge. And that's what really launched our, our, our career so quickly was that business network that we helped build. And then the experiential learning, because we were running huge projects. I mean, we're working with Goldman Sachs and like Walgreens and we're doing massive community outreach projects. Uh, so we'll just, let's go back. So what is SIFE students yeah. and free enterprise the, at the time, the organization just recently changed, unfortunately, but at the time it was a head for business, a heart for the world was the motto. And it was, it was focused on business success in college. You, you do community outreach projects and you focus on areas uh, of education that are lacking in the community. So traditionally growing up, I was never taught about business or finance or, um, market economics or entrepreneurship. None of those things were taught downriver in our educational system. I didn't get a single class either. I don't think it's taught hardly at all. It's not. So for the, for me, now that my life, my paradigm was changed, I was very passionate about that. And that's exactly what this organization did is we went into the communities and we taught those areas. So one of the projects, I'll give you an example of one project. So we, we did between six and 10 projects every year. And then we would compete nationally or regionally and then nationally based on the projects that we ran, the impact in the community that they had. You had to actually measure it with data. You had to manage large amounts of people, motivate the students to get involved, have them see the benefit of them getting involved as well as the benefit of the community, structure it, get local businesses involved. And so one of the projects we ran what was called uh, E-Academy, the Entrepreneurial Academy. And we ran this every summer. Um, it was a two-week program this summer. And we would go to all the, a bunch of local high schools. We got, went to eight high schools. We got them to provide three students from each school. And all of the students got scholarship money uh, donated. I think the first year, we had different philanthropic organizations that donated funds. The first year was sponsored by the Ford Motor Company Fund, though. And so they all got scholarship funds for participating in this two-week program. And then essentially what we did is we taught them A to Z. How do you do market research? How do you develop a business plan? How do you then go to investors and get funding for a startup, right? And then so we would have the morning segments where we would teach them all the content of entrepreneurship, developing a business plan, what you have to do. And then in the evening or the afternoons, us as SIFE students, we would volunteer. We would coach the different teams. So we had a couple students assigned to each team. And we would help them over two weeks develop this business plan. And then in the interim, they would go out and do market research in the community, get results and data for their business plan. We brought in local business owners and executives to then network with the kids, help refine their business plans, give them feedback on it. And then at the end of the two weeks, all eight teams would compete with formal presentations before a board, the board of panelists and judges, which were all local executives and business owners. And then the top three teams that were voted for second, third place got you know substantially more scholarship funding. And then those scholarships were doubled if they chose to come to the University of Michigan and Dearborn. So Ooh. that was one project to give you an idea. And we ran between eight and 10 projects a year, similar to that focused on finance. And we would go into the schools and teach market economics and um, all that stuff. Very cool program, phenomenal organization. Unfortunately, it's kind of uh, died off that they changed the, a lot of the value systems and the structure of the organization and focused it more on social and less on business and renamed the organization in Actus now. And so a lot of that value that was there was lost, but we were able to capitalize on that opportunity. And through that organization, we built substantial networks. I was going to say that that was really like a business networking. It's amazing sometimes how helping people actually helps you like a lot. You built a huge network helping all those kids. Absolutely. What was the project? I remember you did the Walgreens project. You were bringing, do you remember anything about the Walgreens project? Uh, Fury ran that one. Um, 
for about, a couple of years. Yeah. What about the one you ran? I ran a couple. So I was heavily involved in the e-academy. We also had an entrepreneurial mentoring council where we had, there's, I want to say six to 10 of us that were all entrepreneurial based that had small businesses. And, um, Frank Venegas, who is the owner of the ideal group came into U of M and he wanted to be involved with the students and he wanted to have some sort of entrepreneurial program where he could mentor the youth and help them with business, their businesses and growth and development and focus on entrepreneurship. But he didn't know how to structure it. So I got pulled into a meeting with the Dean, uh, Frank Venegas, Mike Callahan, uh, our faculty advisor. And we then wrote up a vision, a mission statement and created the entrepreneurial mentoring council. And for two years, I was one of the guys that was involved in that program, but we met every other week in Frank Venegas' executive boardroom Damn. with his faculty. He would bring in other business owners and executives and, and would coach us on our business planning and our development issues we're having with employees and, and sales and marketing and all that stuff. And we were getting, you know, personally mentored by this guy who's built a massive 200 and some million dollar company owns it all, you know, hundred percent and, um, very, very cool experience. Yeah. That is, that is an amazing you. I mean, you almost didn't even have to go to college for the rest of the shit, right? I mean, do math, read, write a paper, whatever <clears throat> that, that was college was building the network, helping those kids, helping everybody. You got to do some pretty cool things. I would have liked to have gone to college if I had that attitude. Fortunately, <laughs> I did not have such a positive attitude, James. How were you so put together so well so early? Is that your folks and your grandparents and all that? Or yeah, it was it was family and values. I think yeah. um, belief system. That's what goes into it. It's how you're how you're you're born and bred. But I mean, I wasn't there for a while. I had several years that were rough. You know, first couple of years in college where I just was felt very very lost and didn't know where I was going. And it wasn't you know, until two and a half years in that I figured it out. And then I had to reposition. At that point, I was playing catch up. And we were doing, you know, you're, I was helping you sell property. You were coaching me essentially on how to do sales. Yeah. And um, selling properties to overseas investors in, uh, in in the down market, which was which was very challenging. And yet, great opportunity too for a lot of them. And uh, I still haven't had a better year than 2008. Yeah. Those were fun times. I'm getting my fire back, though. I'm getting my fire back. I knew. I haven't told anybody this, but I'm going to tell you now. I knew you were going to make it. Because out of all the young guys who were coming in, you're the only one who always came in. It was tough. It took me a long time to make that first sale. I I did. It was brutal. Well, man, it's – hey, you did better than I did. My first nine months, and I thought I made money. Until I did my taxes and realized I lost my grand. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Nine months to do my first deal. But I knew you were going to make it because you you always came in. Everybody else came for a few weeks or a few months. And then, then it was like they show up once a week. Then maybe once a month. And you were just like, uh, success is showing up. You got to show up first. It starts young. You know, it, it kills me these days that parents don't allow their kids to work at a younger age. Like my parents, I was 10. Well, before I was 10, I had chore lists around the house and I would get paid quarters and dimes, right, to do that. And then I had I had like buckets and my mom taught me how to tithe. So you have like a certain percentage that goes to God, certain percentage that goes for keeping the Feast of Tabernacles every year. And then you have your budget for your fun stuff and like make make believe taxes or whatever, whatever you want to do like that. Make and believe so, taxes. I'm pretty yeah. sure they're real. Yeah, they are real. When you're 10 years old, they're make-believe. But. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> the government's going to want to steal your hard-earned money, son. You better start learning now. <laughs> <laughs> and then at 10, they got me a paper out. And the News Herald actually did. I was too young. You're supposed to be 12. Uh, my parents like, listen, we'll help them for the first like year or so. 
but he's ready for a paper out. So I got a paper out at 10. And in hindsight, like even though I didn't know a lot about business in my formal education, I did actually, looking back, learn a lot because, and my, my parents helped coach me on it too, my mom especially, was we had, I had to work on communication with my clients, building the client base. I mean, if we were going on vacation or leaving town, I wrote them handwritten letters about where we were going and what we were doing. And hey, here's the name of the kid that's filling on the route and here's his phone number. And um, did a great job of learning what the individuals wanted, how they wanted their paper delivered. You want it in the door? Do you want it, you know, tossed up, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, um, Customer service. Customer service, yeah. And then you had to worry about shady people too. I had people try to scam me at 10 years old. They, they would trick me and try to take money out of my hands to where they, they were essentially like giving me back less than they were supposed to and taking more out of my hand. I'm like, wait a minute, this lady just stole like five bucks from me. Like she's supposed to be paying me five bucks in the month. What is this? Did you call her on it? Did oh, yeah. Back? When you get my mom, I was like, mom, this lady just hustled me and she took money. So she <laughs> go back and talk to the lady, get some money back. You got to feel sorry for people like that where they feel like the only way to get ahead in the world is steal from a kid. Yeah, no kidding. Good Lord. Like at first I got mad when you told me that and I'm like, man, there, there's something wrong with that person. Like, <laughs> you need a life intervention if you're stealing from a 10 year old. No kidding. Dude. But I learned a ton about businessman from that paper. It was awesome. I had a lot about people too. And we, I still, you know, shoveled snow every winter and cut lawns and all that stuff as well. So it was good. It was good background, good work ethic. And it teaches you to not give up. Well, I think, um, I'm not sure what it is, but there's certainly something about we want to delay being an adult. And I think some of that is good. Science shows, especially for um, boys, they develop a couple years slower than women. But our brains don't stop growing to somewhere in our mid-20s, maybe late 20s if you're a guy, right? But I don't think it's ever you're ever too young to learn about work, even if it's only 10 minutes of work. Or following through on something, and I don't know. It seems it's like now childhood is twenty five years. Yeah, uh, and I'm not sure I agree with that because I think you're right. It's learning things when your brain is young <clears throat> and very plastic, and you're learning habits. I'm still fighting habits that I learned as a child. It's really hard to overcome those habits, and you can. T- that's a good opportunity to teach your child when their brain is still very plastic. A lot of these good work ethics, and I'm not saying it's lost, but. I don't know. Not well, as prevalent. How much sense does it make to have a kid go for 18 years of their life and all they've ever done is formal education? They have no real world jobs. They haven't really got to try and develop or figure out what any of their skill sets and abilities are because they haven't done anything. It's like the parents shelter them and they give them everything they want and they just go to school, which is good. But formal education only teaches you so much. It doesn't allow you to learn about yourself and learn about your skill sets. And, um, what makes the world really go around. And that's where I think the younger, if you can start allowing your, your child to experience those things, they can figure out what they like, what they don't like instead of just waiting until they're 18 years old and they've lost that whole portion of their life. And that's where you see individuals who are super successful <clears throat> got started usually at younger Very ages. Young, yes. So that. like Donald Trump talks about being nine, 10 years old, listening to his dad negotiate business deals on the phone. And then he's got photos at 11 and 12. <clears throat> he's analyzing inspecting foundations on his dad's building. He's got to go door to door and collect rent in shady neighborhoods where you got to stand on the side and go with essentially an escort, a baseball bat to make sure you're collecting rent. He's got those stories all in his book and books and written out, but he started 10 years before a lot of other individuals would. And that extra 10 years when you're young makes all the difference in the world. Same thing with Tiger Woods. He was sitting as a toddler, watching his dad swing a golf club, right? And so the the best of the best, they're crafted from a young age, and it usually comes back to their parents and how they're bred. 
I can directly tie a lot of my challenges to overcoming bad habits learned less than 10 years old. It's just a fact of life. I, let's face it. That's you powerful. can be lucky or unlucky in the parents category. And there's no doubt that being lucky is way better <laughs> than being unlucky, right? When you look at everybody who's done amazing things, most of them had good parents. And I don't think that's an accident. If you have good parents, what do I mean by good parents? Open-minded parents, parents who uh, will let the kid figure out some things in life, let the kid fall down, uh, but also teach him about work, <clears throat> teach him about choice, teach him about responsibility. When I say responsibility, I'm not talking about what we call responsibility today, which I think is um, it's like a freedom from responsibility. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about real responsibility. You screw it up, you fix it, that yep. kind of thing. So. Absolutely. And I'm still suffering. I have to overcome a lot of these things. There's no doubt. When I look at you and I look at somebody like Josh Sterling, I don't even think he's 30 yet, owns his own private plane. Wow. I mean, it's a small plane, but still, I mean, it's like it's a lot of money. That's Yeah. <laughs> I think he's got almost 200 units now, a lot of them free and clear. He's bought an apartment. It's incredible. I mean, that good parents. Early start, very early start, way ahead. Here I am. And there's a lot of individuals that overcome that. So if anyone that does listen to this that didn't have the best childhood, sometimes individuals who had really difficult childhoods that would be me develop even faster because the trials and what they go through develop strength and character, and they, they learn a lot about life very quickly at a young age. And there's a lot of success stories like that as well. Well, I didn't do it faster, but don't. So if you're mm-hmm. listening to this, don't take this. So, a bad childhood is not an excuse to suck at life. Exactly. It's just a bad childhood. I'm sorry. You got unlucky. <laughs> I got unlucky. It's it's not a reflection on you, and it's not an excuse to not follow your dreams. To underperform and yes. underachieve your true potential, because yeah. we all have substantial potential. Yeah, and there's always a reason not to do something, and I'm here to tell you that reason sucks, all right? It always sucks. It's never a good reason. It doesn't matter how good you think it is. <clears throat> it's a shitty reason, so please don't take this. But if you have kids, understand you can do them an incredible service by being very proactive about these things. Absolutely. So, so from Saif to Hawken, Detroit Turnkey Rentals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how long did it take you? Did it take was it eight months? How long was it to your first? I don't remember now, to be honest. I think it was All eight I know or is, nine months. So I, I burnt two and a half years. I burnt another half a year. And then so by the time I transferred, I think I was three years into college. And um, then I had to play catch up. So for the next two years, I was working, interning with you, learning all about real estate and financial analysis, sales, was building and running Scythe, networking my butt off, and then taking full-time business classes, which I loved and was learning a ton. But yeah, I was was trying to play catch up from that previous three years. So that last two years was just jam-packed focused and then graduated full-time and then jumped into the game doing real estate. And what did you do after you jumped in? So I had to make an, a choice in school during SIF. I had offers and I could have taken potential uh, sales jobs and went into the corporate world. I remember this, by the way. It was a tough decision. And, you know, sometimes I still question which way would have been faster and which way would have been more beneficial to my development. At the time, I made the decision that I thought that if I built my own business and scrapped the corporate jobs that my growth pattern would be faster and that I would learn and develop quicker and have a, a larger upside. I knew the short term, the first couple of years would be more challenging, but I thought in the long-term trajectory, I would have a better acceleration and a better growth pattern, which I'm not sure in hindsight was necessarily correct, but 
um, it just depends, I guess. And uh, I made the choice to do it full time. And the first years were way more difficult than I thought they would be. <laughs> they always are, man. Yes. Yeah, so you went out on your own right away mm-hmm. and started your own business. And you actually did it a very, very different. And I'm most because we're talking about real estate now, but that wasn't what you were trying to do. You were creating a business that dealt in real estate. Right. I, I that was not my approach at all, by the way. I'm sure you remember. That. <laughs> it was very real estate. No, yeah, I got to do some business shit. You came in like, no, I'm creating a business and this business is real estate. You were thinking very big right from the get go. And that was most setting from the framework and the books that I was reading at the time. Like the intake we have in our minds really is the framework for a perspective, but I had never been exposed to it. And then once I got a taste, I was just eating it up. That's what gave me that framework. But so I, I graduated January, 2010. And at the time there were a few individuals that had offered that hit were, were flipping houses. And I, I saw what they'd been doing. I wanted to get into the game earlier, but I was just so busy with Scythe interning with you doing full-time foreign level classes that I, I had been studying this stuff, but I, I didn't have time to actually start executing and implementing it until I graduated. So anyway, there's a handful of guys that were doing deals. They were used to the, the down years though, like 2008, 2009, 2010. And, uh, the market was changing very rapidly by the time I ended up in the game full time in January 2010. And so the margins that they had been used to, which were 40% margins, were no longer realistic. And so I went and was hustling and was negotiating, tying up deals that were profitable, that would have been decent deals. And then these guys are killing them. They didn't want to fund them. Yeah. So, you know, I, I did this for six months. I mean, hustling my ass off, looking at hundreds and hundreds of homes, making tons of offers, driving all over Oakland County, pulling all the data, throwing together the proposal on every one of them. And then they were essentially shooting them down. All the margin is not quite big enough. We don't want to do that one. We don't want to do that one. So I burnt through my savings and like six months, seven months in, I was just emotionally destroyed because now my buddies i look around they're six months in their careers they're crushing it at their jobs and and um i'm like struggling and i'm broke right and so it was very very frustrating and i t- ended up taking off a couple months um in that summer and i i my buddies owned an exterior painting business where they you know you went door to door essentially brokered paint jobs and then hired employees to then execute and produce uh the work on the job site so I did a handful of those jobs for a few months where I sold some exterior paint jobs, hired some kids to actually do the painting and ran that small business, which was a good experience in itself. And it allowed me to refresh, kind of restore my mindset for a couple months. And then I went back at it. But at this point, I still needed money pretty desperately and almost took a corporate job at that point. But I was very, very conflicted in my heart because I'd set out on this path to not do that. And so going back on my decision would have just you know, it was, it was very tough to swallow and I did consider it. And it was, and then it was right in that time that I ended up, there's a couple older individuals in the business. Alan Fatel is one of them that, you know, very well, great guy, wonderful mentor. He ended up allowing me to manage a couple of his projects for him. And so I got to, I knew what we bought the asset for. I was able to hire, screen all the contractors, run the financials, the job site, and then he resold it. And with those jobs, I literally made no money. It's by the time I, I valued my, all my drive time and stuff like that, I, I didn't make any money at all. But I built track records. So I had like three or four projects that I had managed from start to finish. And I knew what the profit margins were. I knew what we bought them for, what we sold them for, and how much I spent in rehab on them and how long it took us to do them. And so... I had all the data, I had track record, and then I ended up getting a couple deals under contract myself. 
Uh, one of which the Allen Finance we did is a 50-50 partnership. Another one that we had structured and then he almost backed out of. And then I had to bring in another investor to finance the transaction and uh, did that one, did really well on those and ended up by then I had good solid track record. And that was another, you know, six months. So by this time I'm a year, year and a half out of school. And that was when I ended up getting the business partners that I have now. And it was just through my business network that I built at Scythe kind of a long story. I was, I was at that point where I was considering getting a job and I was told through my business network, through a guy that I'd met through Scythe and everything else, he was high profile headhunter actually did very well, made a lot of money. And he was, he was placing executives and he was like, Hey, he's like, you know, I heard that, um, the farming group's hiring a commercial analyst. I think that you would crush this position. You should go apply for this position. So I looked at the criteria and I met the criteria skill set wise, but I was lacking two years financial experience. And so I knew the only way if I was going to get that job would be to network my way in. And I had briefly met one of the two brothers that owned the company at um, a networking event through school while I was running Scythe. And he would never have remembered me really, but I used that as a leverage point to contact him directly. And he's the CEO, the one running the company at the time. Reached out to him with a very concise business professional email where I built credibility for myself saying, hey, I was at U of M. We met at this event. I was building my executive advisory board at the time for Scythe. Saw you guys are hiring for this position. I think it's a great fit for me. Can we get together next week and talk about it over coffee? Like a boss. <laughs> <laughs> Sold the shit out of it via email too. That's a hard sell. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And he was actually in Chicago for a couple of months. He was like, hey, James, I'd love to get together with you when I get back in town, but I'm gone for a few months. Um, you know, hit me up at, this date and we'll get together when I'm back in town. And in my mind, I'm like, well, the position's going to be filled by then. So I went back to the guy who told me about it. I said, hey, who's actually in charge of doing the hiring? And he said, it is, it's a, the CFO, the guy that runs the financials for the company, who was is really good friends with the two brothers that own it. And he's been in the business for a long time. And so I ended up reaching out to him directly. And he was like, hey, James, you know, I already filled that position, but I'd really love to get together and talk to you about what you got going on and what you're doing. So I met with the CFO of the company for an hour, hour and a half and talked to him about Scythe and what we did in school. And now the deals I was doing and I had some track record going on. And uh, he ended up introducing me to the other brother that owned the company. And he was a very entrepreneurial brother. He's like, look, he's like the position that you're applying for didn't fit your skill set. He's like, you would have been miserable. You would have hated it, but you might be a really good fit on the brokerage and sales side of our business. And you need to meet with the other brother who's entrepreneurial. So that's kind of like the long story of how I met my business partner was that, that brother. And at the time, um, I ended up not getting the sales position, even though like my personality profile fit. I um, both like the CFO and the entrepreneur brother loved me. I ended up meeting with the other one, the, the CEO that was running the company when he got back in town. And that meeting was the one where they ended up, he ended up not hiring me. He's like, look, you're going to be a great success in whatever you do. But he's like, you don't fit the mold for our training program. And I wish you the best of luck. Like, let's keep in touch. I agree with him. I would say you're <laughs> always going to do your own thing. And I, I mean, if I was going to hire a position like that, when I see someone like you coming, I would like, well, let me invest in your business. I don't know about working for me because you're not going to stay that long. You're going to the top. So, And at the time I was confused because I thought that I crushed it. I couldn't figure out why I didn't get the position. But in hindsight, I remember like he had brought in their top broker that worked for them. And this guy made, you know, between half a million and a million bucks a year, every year, just crushed it for years. Great lifestyle. 
And I was asking him if he, what, what assets he owned. Like, do you own any apartment buildings? Do you own any commercial stuff? You you broker. He's like, no, it's a conflict of interest, man. It's like, I, I broker for all the parties, but I, I don't own it. And I was like, so confused. Cause it's like, my goal is to own the buildings, right? To either build and develop them or eventually perfect own them. for a Farman group though, right? You want someone like that. <laughs> always hungry, always needs the next year's commissions. Right. And he was happy. He had a great career there. I mean, yeah. the guy, he, and he would and have there's been, nothing wrong with that folks. He, he would have been my mentor, I think, or he would have been coaching me if I would have ended up the position, but since I was focused on owning the real estate and there was a conflict there, I think that was probably he he read my my skill set very clearly and knew I was too entrepreneurially focused to be a fit for them spending their resources to train me. Yeah, if you're going to spend that kind of money, they want want somebody to stay for a long time. And yeah, maybe you would have, but I don't know. I I know I've known you for a long time. They took the test. They're probably like, no, this guy's going to start a company. <laughs> He's going to compete with us and crush us. <laughs> I'm not going to train him. <laughs> In hindsight, it worked out though. Well, yeah, you got a partner out of it, right? Yep. How did you? So after they basically didn't hire you and said, "No, you're not fit for the job," so how did I you just, convert them in your business. I kept in touch with the the entrepreneurial one of the two brothers because we hit it off really well. Man, he spent a lot of time with me, and he does a lot of mentoring and like gives back. And he's running multiple. I mean, he's built a bunch of huge businesses since then, like massive big businesses. <clears throat> and he's brilliant because he's changed industries. I mean, he's, he started out flipping houses, small crappy little homes and did like several hundred of them, then shifted and do like large apartment conversions. And uh, he told me the story about the first one of those he did, which was in Detroit Indian village he made like over $5 million in the first, the first one that he did of the big deals. And then eventually um, bought out, large ownership and, and, uh, and the commercial company and then built and grew that with his brother. And then since then he's built multiple tech companies. Now he's in the health field and it, it, he's in his forties, like awesome job raising his kids. I mean, he's got three kids, super smart guys. Like they're just awesome, awesome kids. Spend time with the wife and family. They, they fly to Florida, they go up North the cabin and yet he's running multiple businesses has like 20 employees in, in the last business he started. And they're all, you know, 20 something kids crushing it. And it's amazing what he gets done, but we kept in touch. And it was after I got, I started getting really good track record where I had like five, six, seven deals that I had done. And, um, we were just kept keeping in touch. And he was like, Hey, he's like, you want some more capital? It's like, yeah. He's like, he's like, I used to flip houses all the time. He's like, I love this business, man. I just want, I love being involved in it. Like, yes, in the I do. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Turns out of here. I got this pamphlet, the last seven successful deals I did. What's better than the evidence, right? <laughs> exactly. So I had to pay my dues. I had to build a track record over the first couple of years. And, um, and you know that my track record really started while I was still in school. We were doing deals in Detroit and then shifted from there to when I graduated. But we're sitting there in his office and He's like, you want some more capital? I was like, yeah, sure, man. I can use some more capital. I was like, he's like, well, how's half a million bucks sound? I was like, that sounds all right. He's like, I think I had a, that's what I had my line for when I first started. I think the line of credit that I had, like I was running the small business. He's, and uh, so I'm like, yeah. I was like, absolutely. I was like, you know what? I was like, what I really want more than in capital is I, I want mentoring. Like I want to learn how to build and scale businesses. Like that's my my end objective. Second money is easier than first money. He offered you half a million. You're like, I'll take the money. And <laughs> and while we're talking about it, I could use a little mentorship. And at the time, he was he, he was he was very honest and direct. He's like, look, James, he's like, I've already got a couple of kids that I mentor. He's like, my time is very thin with the businesses that I'm running. He's like, I really don't have a lot of time to spend mentoring and coaching you. He's like, but he's like, I know a lot of successful guys. And I've got someone who's a friend of mine who just sold their company. He's a little older. Um but I think that he would be a, a great mentor. And if we bring him into the business, he'll provide the mentoring and we'll split the cash, you know, throw out the cash, our skill sets complement each other. 
and then uh, we'll build a company and start building the brand. So that's how Luxury Updated Homes got started. The beginning of Luxury Updated Homes. And I apologize for the noise. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can hear that, we are at a good friend, Amanda's Coffee Shop, Always Brewing Detroit. Go to alwaysbrewingdetroit.com, Always Brewing Detroit, conveniently located on Grand River between <clears throat> Southfield and Evergreen. It's a coffee shop that's been around for two years. I love this place. They serve excellent coffee. So sometimes you may hear some talking in the background or maybe a piece of commercial fridge going or the printer for some reason. Maybe I should turn that fucking thing off next time. <laughs> I'll make sure to do that. I'll unplug that next time. It won't happen. But um, go to alwaysbrewingdetroit.com. Always Brewing Detroit. We love Amanda. It's a great coffee shop. You should come check it out. It's beautiful. It's safe. It's great coffee. What do you think of your tea? Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It, it tastes handcrafted. I mean, it's amazing. Handcrafted drinks, folks. Alwaysbrewingdetroit.com. So you get in your partner. Pitch him. Be like, hey, how do you like half a million dollars? Yes, plus mentorship. So he brought somebody else in. They split the money, and you got the mentor you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Don't be too afraid to ask, folks. You know, it was interesting the way we structured the business, too. Um, I learned a lot in the very beginning, but we they taught me a lot of the fundamentals of how you really build a business the right way just from the get-go. Like, a lot of people jump into partnerships. They don't analyze responsibilities and roles. I mean, these guys had their attorneys drop a 35-page operating agreement, and it had every, like, ownership outlined, my structure for my buyout, if I want to buy them out or replace their equity in their ownership of the company, how do I do that? Um and if I die, if they die, what happens to sh- – I mean, everything was well thought out, well structured, and well planned in this agreement. I then hired an attorney to review it. And the way they structured the line of credit too was brilliant. I mean, once you start, once you have money, the opportunity you have for leverage is, is amazing because both these guys, their net worths are so high, they just structure the entity, get a line of credit with the local banking institution, and uh, they really don't even have any cash out of pocket. I mean, we run this thing off the line of credit. Technically, they guarantee, but they've got liquid cash ac- ac- you know, assets in excess so that if something went wrong, the bank's back because they have cash they can pull that's going to guarantee the line. So the bank has low risk. And yeah, we pay us, you know, we were at the time, I think when we first started, it was like 3.9% interest or something on the line of credit. That's a good rate. Yeah, pretty good rate. And uh, it's it's still in the fours right now, but it's a you know variable rate that, that changes. But they had no cash out of pocket. I mean, here they're 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 backing a young guy like me, which they believe in. They and they're at a point where they do want to give back. They want to mentor. They want to coach. But um, they're able to do so without any real cash out of their own pockets. They're just guaranteeing the line of credit, and that's how you really build wealth. I mean, think about it. These guys are able to start businesses, and they without having to pull half a million bucks out of their pocket. They're just able to structure a line of credit with the bank that they've got a banking relationship with. Well, yeah, with assets they have, a track record they have, personal guarantees, wealth they already have. Somebody will just give them the mic. It's amazing when you have money yeah. how much money people will give you, right? Absolutely. But yeah. when you don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you need other people's money, right? That's right. And that's what you did. You went and found other people's money. So after you put together the biggest sell of your life, yes, I'd like that capital, please, sir. Can I have some more? And you got yourself some mentorship. <clears throat> Which I like to think that watching me fuck up my life and how poorly I approach my partnerships had something to do with how well you approached yours. <laughs> I'm going to lay claim to it, at least when you're watching my life going, geez, not, not like that. <laughs> you helped you helped me develop a lot of sales skills, too. I mean, you guys were running a big organization when I interned with you. Yeah. I mean, it, you guys had a huge office space. You're doing tons of deals, massive number of deals. It was cool to watch you guys orchestrate that. And um, it's great. 
I was pretty weak on the partnership, though. I always admired how patient you were. I think that was my biggest problem. I just wasn't patient. I wasn't thinking 10 years. I, I'm just always, like, so driven now, now, now. And, yeah, let's partner. Yeah, let's do just – I did some really stupid things. And I look back, <laughs> I needed a 33-page paper on how this partnership was going to work, you know? If I ever do it again, that's exactly how I will do it. So you put all this together. What was your first project? Oh, I'm trying to think back. Or now. what was the business plan in the beginning? Let me make it a little – let's go broad first so, and narrow So when down. we got into it, I think by this time it was probably 2011. Was it 11 that we started? Uh, maybe – I don't remember. I'll have to go back and look at the, the dates. But anyway, the market was changing, but we were still there were still a large number of foreclosures in Oakland County. So at this time, the, the model was I, you know, I analyzed the MLS daily, run all over Oakland County when bank-owned properties hit market, and then I'll analyze the ones that have been sitting for too long that are overpriced. And you, know, you analyze the back-end sale value if you want to sell this house in under 30 days. You know, what design finishes, floor plan, how does that have to be put together? Okay, there's my sales price number. If I want to sell this thing quickly, liquidate it, work your way backwards, calculate the renovation cost, and then you have your buy price with your and you got to work in your profit margin in there. What's an acceptable profit margin? So that's how we ran our numbers, and it was running all over Oakland County, chasing foreclosure deals, negotiating with the banks, making offers, and um, I think the first deal we did in the company was on Savoy. It was in West Bloomfield. And it was a house that was up on the hill, had a super steep driveway, which ended up being, and we knew it was a negative going in, but it, it hurt us more than we thought it was going to on the back end. We still made money in the project. And um, beautiful colonial, probably 24, 2,500 square foot, something like that. We bought it and it was, I mean, you couldn't even see the house, right? It was covered with trees and the guy lived there forever. They had like oh, six man. dumpsters or eight dumpsters emptying the house out and the, the driveway was destroyed. And they had vines all over it and we, gutted this thing, renovated it, repositioned it, and then resold it. And at the time, I was really—I remember being like disappointed because I think we only made like thirty-five or forty grand on it, or something like that. And we were supposed to have made more like fifty to sixty. And the partners were happy; like they're like, "Hey, no big deal. Like it could have been worse. Like you could have lost money your first yeah. deal, right? Like you did, you did fine. Like let's let's keep rolling." And then from there, I did a handful of deals in those neighborhoods, and um, just kept the ball rolling. And then eventually, the you know the market changed. Yeah. We had to adapt the business model. And um, the first year was awesome, though. We crushed a handful of deals, made really, really good money for the first year and a half, two years. And then the market changed. I had to adapt, adapt the business model, made a few mistakes in the transition, and then um, learned from them and then moved, you know, kept moving on. What mistakes did you make? So I had a few deals. Um, one I ventured out into and I, I rushed to get the deal because by this time deals were getting a little scarce and the foreclosure inventory was drying up. I hadn't fully changed the business model and I bought a deal. I underestimated the rehab and um, didn't do an inspection because it was bank owned. And to get the deal, there were multiple offers. I had to go in, no inspection, no contingencies. And we ended up missing the fact that there, like, there was not adequate vent, like the roof looked like it was in good condition, and I wasn't planning on replacing the roof. But we found out that there was not adequate uh, ventilation, and the entire um, roof attic area was full of mold, like oh. massive. And so we had to go through, and we had to rip off the entire roof, all the decking of the roof, rip out all the insulation, um, clean, 
you know, bleach, mold, remove everything, and then rebuild it all. It was a very large house. That's an expensive roof. That, and then we originally had planned on keeping the kitchen cabinets, and then we got into it, and we're like, we, we can't do that if we want to hit the sales price number. We've got to do it right. We've got to gut them. So we end up spending more money in the kitchen than we wanted to. And then with the timing, with the winter, I ended up being delayed, and we held it for longer than we should. And then when I went to market, I was so focused on getting the sales price number that I wanted. I listed the house higher than I should have for a fast sale. I was trying to push because we had then overspent on the renovation by a lot and um, ended up then missing the majority of the market and, and ended up being in the fall before we sold it. And we ended up taking a hit and with all the overages and the renovation and the whole time we ended up losing 23, 24 grand on that, something like that. Ooh, ouch. Yeah. So we had, I'm sure they didn't make the, partners happy no either, right no 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 they're very patient I, I we had a couple we had so we had ended up having three deals in a row that i ended up making different mistakes on each so at this time we we changed the business model a little bit and i start we, we shifted into a more affluent market because the foreclosure inventory was drying up i needed to focus and consolidate my efforts and i liked renovating good quality product like that's part of the brand was i always over renovated the houses and i made sure they were done right and they were done well and that was kind of part of the reason why we lost money on on uh that house on tanglewood and farmington hills but that was mostly because i I didn't i didn't do my due diligence and i i missed like the roof and the mold issue and all that stuff so it was a combination of those other mistakes but we shifted to a more affluent market which then I was overly conservative because the market that we shifted into, buyers are worried about functional, fundamental elements of the house. So like it's not just doing a paint and carpet cosmetic update with like cabinets and granite design and tile backsplash and the right finishes in the bathrooms, aesthetically in the right color plans. They care about the floor plan of the house. You've yeah, got to have a huge, layout, right? You've got to have a huge great room. You've got to have a mud room on the house where kids can take off their hat, hats, coats, boots all that other stuff. They don't want to laundry in the basement and running up two sets of stairs. Got to have a second floor laundry. You got to have a huge master suite with a walk-in closet, double sink, soaker tub, stand-up shower, lots of room for their lifestyle. So you have, and you've got to have, uh, you know, full two-car garage. You got to have all these fundamental functional items in the house, as well as having it designed aesthetically to where it's appealing, it's trending, it's what everyone wants. And it's moving, it's gorgeous and designed. So you have to have both. You have to have the functional and the design elements. And so the first deal that I did in that bigger market, I was a little bit conservative because we went into the house and I just did a cosmetic. I mean, we, I knew that I needed to add some of the functional items and I did my due diligence as far as talking to some of the best real estate agents that were in that marketplace because they had more knowledge than I did at the time because I was just getting into that market. But they did not inform me correctly. And we did create a master suite for the house, which it didn't have, where you had your own master bath and you had a walk-in closet. Closet was a little tight and it was smaller. And the bathroom, though, was not big enough to have double sinks, soaker tub, and a stand-up shower. We only had one sink and we had a shower. It was still a private master bath. The kids don't have access to it, but it wasn't a master suite the way that it needed to be. And we didn't build a mudroom for the house. Uh, we essentially just kept the envelope of the home the same. Now, we did re- redesign the exterior, the front of the house, built a really nice approach overhang with pillars, uh, put on proportional shutters, redid the siding. Like we, we refaced the home, which it was an ugly house. It had no curb appeal, and then it was beautiful from the exterior. But on the interior, in hindsight, we should have ripped the back of the house off. We should have gutted it, done a full addition, 
and we should have added it should, we needed four bedrooms for that neighborhood as a family neighborhood. It was only a three bedroom house and we needed a large master suite on the back. We needed to have a second floor laundry. It only had a basement laundry. There was no mud room. Um, and even though the garage looked like it was attached to the house, you did not have direct access where you could walk from the garage into the house and the garage was positioned sideways. So you could only really fit comfortably one large vehicle. It'd be very difficult to get two in and out of it. And then the, it had an addition on the back, which was a family room, but the kitchen was in the middle of the house. We opened it up, created a larger kitchen, but the lighting still wasn't great because of the location and the position of it. And then you had to walk through the dining room to get to the back living space. And so functionally it wasn't what buyers wanted. And in hindsight, I could have made a lot of money in that project if I would have been a little more aggressive. And if I would have pitched the partners and said, Hey, this is what we should do. We need to rip the back of the house off, do a 1200 square foot addition. We'll create a nice great room. We'll create a mud room right off the side of the garage. We'll reposition the garage to where you enter from the front. You can get full two cars. We'll add the master suite upstairs in the back. It's going to be a four bedroom, three full bath, nice powder room on the first floor. And we'll reconfigure the layout to where it has all the functional items that buyers want and we'll redesign it. If we would have done that, we'd have made 180, 200 grand on it. But I didn't. I kept, I added the master suite, but we were missing all the other functional items. And we cleaned it up, designed it well. Finishes were great. Curb peel was good. But functionally, it wasn't what people wanted. We had tons and tons of showings and just had to keep dropping the price until someone was willing to buy it at such a big bargain. But we were, we were off where our number could have been or where it should have been. If it had the functional items, so we ended up losing money on that house as well. Oh man, and this is like two back to back. So at this point, my partnership's somewhat somewhat in jeopardy. And there was another house that we had we had bought at the same time. Um, it was in another area of Oakland County in Huntington Woods, which is a it was a great house. All the comps, the data were, were was there. It was a twenty four hundred square foot four bedroom, um, great house. We opened up the floor plan, created it more of an open space. We had everything in that one that we really needed. But it had an it had like the garage was single car entry and it was under it was in the ba- half the basement was essentially the garage so you I drive down house. you I drive remember, down into yeah. it and it was super cool like I love the house all my buddies loved it but we ended up because that was a I didn't realize it when I bought it in that city you cannot park overnight in the streets which I didn't know when we bought it oops and um, so since it was only a single even though it was a three car garage it was tandem to where you would have to back cars out, move them, reposition them. And for a family area, if you've got teenagers or whatever, you don't want to be moving cars in and out of a single you know, tandem garage. And so all the market data in that area is that we should have sold that house for 450 all day in less than 15 days on market. And if it had a regular garage built in the back or on the side of the house, we would have, and it would have been gone. But um, because of that, we ended up selling it for about a hundred grand less and we lost money on that house as well. Damn. So I had three back to back to back that were different mistakes. And I, I just learned you can't settle for an asset that is subpar in any way. The lot has to be great location has to have the ability to build all the functional items and design items that buyers want in that market. And if you do that, you'll sell it all day and you'll sell it quick and you'll get them gone. But I, I made a series of bad mistakes back to back to back. And the timing for that was where we had gone from a company that had no overhead to where we stacked up on overhead. At the same time, I made mistakes. I went from no overhead to 150 grand a year in overhead. One, one of those pieces being I, I hired one of my business partner's sons in exchange for a larger line of credit, which had some challenges in and of itself. But we ended up... Um, 
getting into a hole because we went from no overhead to a lot of overhead and I lost money on three deals in a row. And in between there, I had other deals we made money on. But still, with that and the overhead, I ended up getting myself in a little bit of a hole I had to, I had to dig out of. Oh, man. So that luxuryupdatedhomes.com, luxuryupdatedhomes.com, 734-308-0109. So damn, man, that was a tough position. So you're, you're like losing everywhere, losing money, adding overhead. Everything's going wrong. Partnership in jeopardy, relationships in jeopardy, losing money. How, how'd you turn this thing around, man? This is, this is, I think that if you read and you study stories about guys that are successful, you go through phases like this and it's always, it's a spiritual test. There's always that barrier to where you have to get to your breaking point where you almost want to like give up or quit and then you bulldoze through it and then momentum changes and things start building back to the positive. But I think the most challenging aspect to all of it to me was just the disappointment. Like I felt like I made mistakes and I let my business partners down these guys that i respected to the the highest level and um made a handful of bad decisions and it all happened at the same time missed a few things here and there and ended up getting us in in a in a difficult position and so i was stressed over it immensely it was it wasn't so much about the losses in the big picture as it was just the relationships and and but yeah you know i had good good partners that believed in me and they believed in my potential and um had the opportunity to build back out of it and and maintain those relationships and keep the brand going. So that's w- what we did. And um, thankfully, I convinced them to keep doing deals. Hey, here's what we the, the lessons I've learned from these mistakes. Here's what we're going to do going forward. And here's how because I was so frustrated because I could see the potential. Like we should be making a hundred grand a pop on these houses. Like this is how we can do it. This is how we can build them. I see the demand. Um, this is in an, a concentrated area. Well, let's talk about we'll talk about the, the business model change, right? Because before, I was over a large geographic region, hustling down deals, just doing clean and simple cosmetic rehabs. We're not changing floor plans. We're not ripping the back of houses off and adding twelve hundred square foot to them and changing the front and the whole floor. Like that, now I'm into major construction and design, right? Which my background's business. It's not construction. I didn't grow up in the trades, so I had to learn a lot of that stuff. And thankfully, we had hired talent. I, I also we we hired several employees individuals one of which is you know my on-site superintendent slash construction manager who has 40 50 years of real estate construction background that knows the ins and outs and he can be on the job sites with the guys all day but we changed the business model from a large geographic region to a very small concentrated area of one city essentially with the highest demand real estate in the state which everyone else thinks it's so impossible to buy deals there. But if you approach it from the correct perspective, you can. And it takes you know, more work and more difficulty to rebuild the houses. But when you have the right product, people in this area will pay cash for it. Um, and they, they will buy it and you will sell it instantaneously because it is a very exclusive, high-demand area. Best schools in the state, most beautiful downtown in the state. Um, city services are phenomenal and people pay the price to live there. But it, and if you want to build your business network and if you want to be involved and engaged in the community, like this is the place to be. This is Birmingham, right? Birmingham, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Birmingham, Michigan. One of the richest cities in Michigan. It might be the richest city in Michigan. Yes, right? definitely the highest price per square foot. Yeah, for sure. How much per square foot? Uh, depends on the, the type of house, but anywhere from, you know, 200 bucks a foot to 600, $700 a foot. That's a lot. That's that's very desirable real estate, considering that most places is in Michigan less than a hundred bucks a square foot. Even 
Yeah. Even the nicer areas are right at 100 yep. or 110 bucks a square foot. That's, yeah, and this is where they'll pay. You know, it's amazing to me if you buy real estate, the power of it in strategic locations. I mean, I'm, I'm watching these individuals who bought these houses 30, 40 years ago, and now they, they bought them for, you know, 50 grand, 100 grand or less, sometimes 25, $35,000 like back in the day. And now the dirt, the lot, is worth four hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars. Some six, six fifty, size seven hundred thousand dollars for a piece of dirt. Blade the house, the lot, the location is worth seven hundred grand. They build a two million dollar house on it, or a three and a half million dollar house on the lot. And um, there's only so much real estate in that space and in that community. And so it's supply and demand. Like the value and the desire for it is incredible. So location still rules. Absolutely. So you became incredibly uncompromising in your location. You said, yes. you know what? I know I can get these prices if I don't compromise my location. And if the house doesn't fit, I'm going to make it fit. Yes. It's got to have all the functional elements that they want and the design. That's aesthetics. when you started taking your builder's license and all that. I remember that. That was when you were like, well, I'm going to have to start doing some serious shit now, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Studying construction books a little more. Yeah. Trying to learn the details and ins and outs of that and paying attention to the higher is it just, it's a different realm of construction and attention to detail. I mean, it's amazing to me. You see the guys building the little cheap crappy houses in the areas that I grew up in and there's bare bones, basic. And then the difference between that and the real cedar shot, like siding and solid wood shutters with real hinges and real latches and all those design details, you know, make the house it gives it such, such a quality feel. And you can see the difference when you look at the two products between the fake and the, and the real. And that's what people with uh, affluence, they, they have that attention to detail and you got to produce that product. But if you do, they'll pay all day long for it. And in that area, all those homes were built in the twenties, thirties, fifties, sixties. And so the floor plans are dated functionally, obsolete, functionally right? obsolete. Yeah. So those ones they don't want, and they'll sit for a while and either you're going to have to do a major renovation to it or you're going to have to blade it and build new construction with a floor plan the way people live today because it's very, very different than it used to be. And some of the homes you have, the beautiful 1930s feel and quality and design, and you can renovate them. And, and, and But you know others, you got to tear them down and, and start, start over. I don't want to go back too far, but I do want to focus in on how do you sell your partners after multiple losses and overhead? Basically, you're like... Swimming in debt. like, uh. <laughs> But you know what? What I need to do is more money, and I need to go to a place that's more expensive and more desirable, and we need to invest more money. We got to start tearing houses apart. How did you make that that pitch? Because that that's like the sales pitch of all time, right? I just lost a ton of money. Yep. We're going to stop losing money, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to invest more money, new area, new focus, all that. How, how did that – yeah, that was a sell of your life right there. It was. And it, to add to it, so I'll never forget a meeting that I had with uh, with Tom, who's the older mentor role partner. And the other thing that added to this complication was um, I had hired his son and we had a little bit of different personalities. And we ended up having some conflict in the business. And then his son ended up not working for, for us anymore. So that element also added another challenge to our relationship, which yeah, that, is difficult to, that could have been ugly to kind of, to kind of mend. So not only did I lose money on three projects, but had, you know, compromised the relationship, um, via the relationship with his, with his son as an employee on salary for the company. And so I remember sitting down and he, he 
brings the numbers and I had like great deals lined up and we had, I'd done a few more really good projects, but he was still very skeptical and very hard lined on, um, building back. And he turns the the paper around and pushes it across the table. Cause I'm, I'm pitching him again. I'm a vi- visual guy. I'm like, look, here's the deals. I know we can do this over and over again. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's another project we, you know, and, um, he's like, here are the numbers. He's like, look, James, he's like, you want to cut and dry. This is how it is. He's like, these are the times that try men's souls. And it, it's a quote from, I think it's Thomas Paine. He's like, you know, we've all been in the hole. He's like, I ran a company that was in debt. We had to build it back to profitability. He's like, this is what tries your character. He's like, either you're going to break and fold and Dave and I are writing a check for 200 grand to cover the losses, or you're going to build this back out of profitability. And he's like, it's up to you which way it is, but here's the number. The numbers don't lie. This is where we're at today. Get us out. And so, so I did. And I was, I knew that I could, I saw other projects that had gone well. And that first one that I did in Birmingham, there was a house two streets over that was not as good functionally as the house that we bought. Someone else paid more money for it. It was kind of an odd duck house, but they had done all the functional items to the home. They built in the mud room. They, they, they built in the massive master suite and second floor laundry, and they created a great room. And even though it was an uglier house, the exterior aesthetic wasn't as good. They crushed it and made like 180 grand on it. And I ended up losing money on ours. And in hindsight, if I would have done more construction to our project, we could have made 180 on it or more if I would have built it properly. And um, so I saw that it could be done. I just, I had to do it right. And I, I couldn't allow, allow fear to implement my, or to change my judgment calls. And on that house, I knew that if we did more construction to it, it would be better and we get a lot higher number, but I was trying to be conservative and play with what we had and do like a faster rehab and it ended up not working out well. So in hindsight, I was like, you got to always build the right product, which we talked about a little bit. Yeah. That was an amazing sell there. And obviously it worked out. So what was your first project after that? So you've like, you've gone across the desert, 40 days, no food, a little bit of water. Try to profitability somewhere, you know. I had a couple of good ones that we did. Um, we bought a house. We bought a duplex. Negotiated this great deal that was a duplex, but it was in a phenomenal location, and um, converted it to a single family home. So we gutted the entire interior floor plan. It was 1937, classic, like really quality brick constructed home, but it was floor plan was a duplex. So we gutted it, repositioned it, created a great room, nice mud room on the back, massive open floor plan from front to back of the house, made sure it had good lighting, built a huge, massive master suite, uh, laundry, um, all the functional items we needed in, in the house. And then we turned it around and, and flipped and sold it, made about a hundred grand on it. And so that was the, I think that was the starting point of getting back out of the hole. Then I did another one that was, um, Similar. It wasn't a duplex. It was single family, but it was, you know, obsolete, but it had enough square footage to where we could reposition, build a master's like the proper master suite, steal square footage from here and here, add a second floor laundry to it, um, open up the lower level floor plan, create the great room we needed, built a mutt room off the attached garage, turned that one around, sold it, made 120 grand on that one. Hell yeah. And so now we're heading the right direction. Yeah, so we're doing a couple <laughs> of them. We're starting to burn a turn and get, get more deals rocking and rolling. And you get your confidence back, right? Getting the confidence back. That's huge. Yep. But it takes time to build the confidence back from the business partners too. And um, yeah, so we just started there, man. and kept going, kept rolling. 
That's amazing. So never, never, and nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the, of the enemy. Winston Churchill. That was a good quote right there. It's a great quote. Luxury Updated Homes. I didn't abbreviate it this time. LuxuryUpdatedHomes.com, 734-308-0109. So there does seem to be a significant amount of adversity in running your own business, making your own decisions, being tough enough. I think a lot of it has to do with just being incredibly honest with yourself, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Incredibly honest about with yourself about what you're doing, what you're doing wrong. I know you're not blaming anybody else for your mistakes. Um, you, you took it all on. You said, you know what? I'm going to make it. And you went out and made it happen. What was the first deal you actually bladed? Like where you just knocked the house down and just build, build a new. So we just, so I tried pushing the business partners a while back because I saw the trend. I knew new construction is where we needed to go. And I knew with renovations, you always have all these unknowns and variables when you get into it, always. New construction can be uh, much more accurate with details and with figures and square footage. It's cleaner, but it also takes longer, right? Long time. Because you get government, and it took me, tons yeah, of stuff. It took me a year of pushing the business partners on it before I sold them on the, the first new construction house that we did. And the only reason I was able to push into it was because I negotiated the lot for such a great price and I bought it on seller financing terms. So our cash into the deal was a lot less and that made our ROI number where we needed it to be. And the location was really good and I just pushed it hard. I was like, look guys, I know the data, like here is the data. There's nothing walking distance to downtown for under a million four. And the one, the two lots that are listed are just, they're just teardowns. They haven't even started construction on them. They're trying to pre-sell them. And then someone's gonna have to wait for, you know, a year and a half to build the house. No one wants to do that. They want to walk into a product that's done. And I know that if we build this, we can sell it very, very quickly because the location's so good that you can walk to town, you can walk to everything that you need to be at. And so we uh, was a house on Bloomfield Court, walking distance to downtown Birmingham. And I pushed the partners hard enough on it. I, I didn't give up. I was like, we got to buy this. The ROI is good. I negotiated a phenomenal price on the lot, seller financed. And uh, so we paid three hundred forty thousand dollars for the for the lot essentially, and it had a nineteen twenty seven Tudor on the on the location, but the basement was compromised, was just a garbage house, and it wouldn't have made sense to renovate. It was much better to blade it and build new. And so uh, we put fifty grand down, and the two ninety on a note at five percent interest only or more payments per month. Damn, that's good. Two year balloon. So I got great terms. How'd you do that? You know, that one was on market. So uh, a couple bought it and they were planning on building the house like uh, several months before. They had already shut off utilities. And then with their one their one son, they changed plans. They wanted to keep him in the schools that he was in. And they're going to wait and end up building another time. So they relisted it. And it had sat on market for a while because I think they were toward the end of the year. So they kind of missed like the main selling season. And he had listed it too high. He was trying to get more for it than what he paid for it originally. But the market wasn't quite there. And even though it was downtown, it was on like a little bit of a side street that was a little awkward, small. And so 
I just threw in two offers. I threw in a cash offer and then I threw in a land contract offer. And I made the cash offer low enough that I knew they were going to lean toward the land contract as a price point. They, they weren't going to take a loss. I offered them less cash than what they paid for. And I, you know, I can read public record. I know what they paid Make for. Make your other offer look really good. Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I'd done that on a bunch of deals actually. And that also makes our capital go further. So we've got a better ROI. And so they countered me back. And so we came to terms. Bought on land contract, which I was surprised. I also Good got job. paid a real estate commission on it because I was the buyer's agent. I wrote it up. So I got 3% of whatever, 340 grand, whatever the purchase price was. So I got a check at closing, which Boom. was nice. Yeah. <laughs> and before then, you even did anything. Well, you just negotiate. I got paid for negotiating. That's the way to do it. <laughs> I got to start doing that. <laughs> it was great. So going into this one, I knew with the location that I needed to hire an expert. Like if I want to sell a house at the price point it could be. And I knew there was going to be a big variable. Like if I built this house and sold it right, we could sell it for 1.2, which is where my target was. If we didn't, then um, we could, get, I could end up getting in the 900s. I knew the lighting, floor plan, design, everything was imperative for the location. And so I hired one of the best designers in the country to consult on the project. And at the time, I had a lot of people that gave me crap about it because he's very, very expensive. And they're like, you flip houses all the time. You know design inside and out. You're essentially picking most of the selections anyway. And then you're going to pay him to like consult you on it. Like, why are you blowing all this money and, uh, you know, paying him almost 200 bucks an hour on the project to like consult you through the process? But in my gut, I knew one, he's got a phenomenal brand and he's been around forever. Two, he's a great guy, and, he, and there's a ton I can learn from him because he's been around a lot longer than I have. And three, he's connected in that market so well. Everyone knows his name. He flies all over the place to Miami, California for second homes, Europe to design for his clients. And uh, he's really, really, really good. He's one of the best. And so I followed my gut, hired him to help consult on the floor plan, finishes, add in a bunch of additional design elements, and it was his name. He was the one that actually ended up selling the house for us. We pre-sold it before it was done. Yeah, how stupid you look now, doubters. Right? <laughs> Designed it and sold it for you. That's a bargain, right? And I mean, it took us a, like a, you know nine months or whatever to build this house. And I got so much crap the whole time from everyone. Above. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, a man. lot of people. Yeah, don't listen. Yeah. But I followed my gut and it paid off. And we sold it for exactly what I said we would, 1.2. And the buyers end up paying cash. Cash money. First house I ever built from scratch. How big was it? 3,103 square feet. Did it have a basement and all that? Yep. Yeah, walk me through the layout because, I mean, you hired this, you know, big swing and, you know, come in, redesign, nationally known, all that. What, <clears throat> how big was the house? What it looked like? Uh, so uh, is it the exterior of the facade – was very it's very transitional i'm trying to build a transitional product that's not too contemporary that's not too traditional right it's like right in the middle where it's a great mix it's got a lot of really um awesome features on the interior like custom unique floors like gray textured kind of like old school looking floors with a custom trim package on the interior exterior was a colonial you know two-story colonial um right now with the trends we're doing stone around the base majority of its hardy board siding clean white with like dark accents you know we have real real constructed wood shutters that are proportional for the windows with all the hardware on there beautiful glass door in the front of the house so the way we designed the floor plan is i wanted first of all excellent lighting from every perspective too when you look at it from the street you can see through the front door and out the back of the house phenomenal open layout so you have light everywhere it's just gorgeous and you know you walk in you've got a nice foyer area that's completely open you can see out the back of the home with uh, 
nine foot floor to ceiling glass French doors along the whole back of the house. Wow. And um, Sounds nice. to the right, we had the dining room. And to the left, we had the library slash office study. Did a ton. And, and, and uh, the designer, Jeffrey King, had a custom trim package that he had personally designed that the local lumber yard makes, which was it's a beautiful two piece with like back band, um, saw, like just gorgeous trim package that we did throughout the house with cove molding. But it was clean, it's clean in between modern and traditional, where it, it's just it was a great feel for the house. And um, the layout was you had massive, great room on the back of the home with this huge island <clears throat> where you can have all the kids, four or five bar stools. Um, beautiful custom stonework you have a powder room where we, we you walk in and you've got a floating vanity with under cabinet lighting and then the back wall is just tiled from floor to ceiling and a lot of times you know in powder rooms when people put granite in they have that like granite backsplash that's real chunky that goes around the back but that ruins the lines and the look the design so we had a you know flat-faced clean floating modern vanity with lighting coming from underneath of it. And then you miter the edges on the custom stone or, or whatever you use where you get a, like a two and a half inch. It looks like it's two and a half inches thick instead of it just being like an inch, which is what's standard. So you have this thick countertop that just looks like it's two and a half inches of stone. Um, custom like marble looking design through it and then no no backsplash. So it's just clean lines where if you have really good countertop guys, they can fit it perfectly between the walls where you don't need that backsplash. And the tiles from floor to ceiling comes down, sits on the, on the, uh, the countertop. And then we built out and Jeffrey drew this up. We built out uh, a mirror, which was about two inches off the tile and it had led lighting behind it. So you had a floating piece of glass. that's just floating two and a half inches off the tile with lighting all the, all the way around behind it. You can change the color of the lights with that. And like what's underneath of the, this is some serious attention to detail, oh, man, be- just beautiful, man. So cool. And then, these gorgeous chrome faucets that were 400 bucks a piece and um, just square clean lines. It just it ended up being a beautiful home. Master suite was phenomenal. And we designed it. The walk-in closet had to be larger than the other bedrooms because that people will put additions on their houses here for their closet space. Right. And so we had a huge closet with an Island in the middle and you've got hampers built in and uh, Tons of room for hanging, good light. You've got a, a window in there, so it's an entire dressing room essentially. Cool barn doors that slide for the closet and for the bathroom entry. Um, and in the master bath, we did this really long vanity all the way down the left side of the bathroom with uh, beautiful wall sconces, mirror all the way across, and uh, fa- the faucets actually came out of the wall, out of the mirror. And then we had a leathered, like textured stone where instead of having like a shiny finish, it's a matte finish and you have like the texture in the stone. And then these beautiful, like very small square white sinks from Devant that are 450 bucks a piece. And they just sit right on top of the stone. So you have the faucet coming out of the wall and then the, uh, uh, the sink that's white and beautiful sitting on this like dark black leathered honed stone. And then you, you know, when you walk in, you look and the opposite wall is a waterfall effect where you have this beautiful, huge glass shower with shower heads on both sides. So his and her can shower together. And on one side you have like all the wall sprays. The other side you have the handheld and it's all Chrome. Right. And then, um, the tile design was beautiful. The way the floor, um, was vertical and staggered. And then we had, and it's like, it looks almost like concrete that this stone we did, we did like a, a gray, uh, a gray stone that Jeffrey picked out. And then 
we had a, a beautiful waterfall effect with the, the pebble stone that's coming down the wall, but it's in almost like a horizontal pieces. So it looks like it's a waterfall and comes down into the floor pan, which is then the, more of that round stone. And then you have the horizontal tile that goes around the, the uh, this is luxury, man. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And then you have like a, a soaker tub under the window over here, private stall for the bathroom. Um, just a great phenomenal lighting, massive windows, all the way around, and it was, it was a beautiful home. It turned out really well. Do you have any pictures of this? Uh, no, we're, we're going to do a photo shoot here soon. So we we sold it so quickly, and we're waiting for that's a good problem to have. Yeah, we're waiting for the owners to get all their furniture, which they're having like hand built here in the U.S. installed, and all the drapery and all that stuff because the designer Jeffrey's doing all that stuff for them. And once all the furniture is in the house, we're going to go back through and do a photo shoot. Jeffrey, man, he's uh, he's doing pretty well on this deal, huh? Oh, he's yeah, he's 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 doing great. You know what? If you're if you're good at something, you'll get paid. Would you mind sharing the photos, like some sort of link? Um, I know it might not be available for when this podcast is released, but when we get them done, I will share them on Facebook. Hell yeah, because we need to see yeah. this, man. Absolutely. This is amazing, high quality stuff. Uh, I I want to see <clears> it. That's <throat> like uh, taking a. I don't know, going to one of them fancy hotels. That shower sounds amazing. Like, I want to go take that shower right now. <laughs> Two from two different spots. I think I saw that commercial, you know. It's like a waterfall on your head. That sounds pretty amazing. That's great. So do you mind um, how much – do you, can you talk about the deal or how much you had into it, how much you made? Yeah, so we bought the lot for three forty. Um, our build cost on it was around oh, – what was the build cost? Five, five eighty, I think, something like that. Um, we sold it for 1.2 minus we, we did have commissions cause I had a, another agent that we ended up paying that helped, uh, broker the deal originally. Really it was Jeffrey's buyers that, that bought the house. But, um, so after closing costs, all that stuff, we knitted about 255, 260 on it. Jesus. Yeah. About a quarter million dollars, man. I did 52 deals for, yeah, I'm not going to say, <laughs> A fraction of that. <laughs> That's a big paycheck. You know, good for you, man. You stuck it out. You earned it. That kind of attention to detail. That took you nine. How, how many months are you into it? About, a, about a, year, a little over a year by the time I actually closed. Yeah. Because yeah. we had to wait. Like the permits take forever the city. So we waited for. Yeah, what, that's two, a good question. Three, two, three months, three months before we could break ground. Yeah, what, the what's city. the regulatory process look like for someone who might want to? Um, Depends on the city. It, where we're at, this location. The city is just so overwhelmed with construction because there's so much going on. They're they're just understaffed. And so it took us over three months to get the permits back and get them approved before we could break ground. So we essentially waited for three months. And then utility companies were behind as well. I mean, it took several months to get DT and consumers out there to shut off and uh, to do that. And then the city would not approve our, our, our permits until we had all the demo permits. Like it was, it was a process. And then they had to approve the construction drawings and all that stuff. So it takes took a little bit of time before you can even get going on the construction of the house. You got to sit and wait for a little while, which does, you know, adds in a variable that, that there's more risk there because the market can change. Right. Yeah. Holding costs too. Right. And holding costs. Yeah. Especially in these locations where taxes, you know, can be anywhere from five to 13 grand a year on the, on the dirt. Yeah. We're talking about nice houses, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> Birmingham, Michigan is a, about as high end as it gets. Maybe some of the gross point mansions might rival it, but we're talking like, very affluent, very rich, nice downtown, beautiful homes, big, big, big money, big money, and the beautiful house. As you can tell, you sold this for 1.2 million cash. 
they write you a check or they hand you a bag of gold <laughs> doubloons or how did that work? Uh, it's wired funds. Just wired Computers. funds. <laughs> yeah. Modern day. I think that'd be fun to go to a closing <clears> instead <throat> of, you know, like it's like a treasure chest. It's open like a pirate and like gold comes flying out with rubies <laughs> and emeralds. And that'll do. That'll and that do. was, you know, that was the base price for the house too. Like they ended up doing like all the closet systems were extras. The privacy fence was an extra. You upsold They them. upgraded flooring in the master and did a bunch of other. So they spent, you know, another between 50 and 80 probably on upside stuff. Well, yeah, you're in for 1.2 million. Might as well get what you want, right? That's right. <laughs> well, I imagine they earn their way in life. It's time for something nice. How many bedrooms Wonderful does the house people. have? Four bedroom, three and a half bath. Yeah. And then we, we built a fifth bedroom in the basement. So actually, uh, Five, four, one, yeah. Yeah, the basement one. That's the, the mother-in-law the, room, you know. Yeah, with another suite, yeah. another another bathroom down there. So yeah, that's where you can stay, mother-in-law. It's down in the basement. And they put a theater down there. All the audiovisual, all the cool. The tech side's pretty cool with the house too. Like they can control everything from their smartphone, like temperature control. Um, they have audiovisual, like three different areas. They can play music in the house. Um, and and design-wise, you know, in the master. And, and downstairs in the great room, all the audio visual stuff's ran through a Wi-Fi system that's then centralized in the basement. So all you have is a floating TV screen and a remote. There is no cable bot. Like all that stuff stored downstairs in an audio visual room. And all you need is a remote and your TV. And it runs through the Wi-Fi system, which is pretty cool. That's They've got cameras idea. front and back. Um, they can you know adjust lighting and change lock, open, unlock the doors. The kid, if they're not home, the kids need to get in or whatever. All from the smartphone, which is pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. That's one of my pet peeves about Comcast and cable installer, especially in Detroit on these beautiful brick houses. These assholes will drill holes anywhere. So the house, <laughs> floor, <laughs> wall, <laughs> and you end up Brutal. buying these houses. And you're like, there's like 25 holes drilled, and every time you get a new service, why would I? I want to take that. <laughs> Let's drill another hole. Yeah. So you put everything down in the basement. They should all do that. They should. You should put together a course for these people. They're going to need it. They're going to build these houses like this for another hundred years unless somebody <laughs> tells them that. <laughs> what? You mean I can't drill 25 holes through the side of the brick? Why not? <laughs> Good Lord. So this is also a modern, up-to-date electronics, all that. Yeah. All integrated, music in each room. Is it like wireless? Is it through Wi-Fi or Bluetooth? Or Yes. they they We pre-wired the whole house so they have all the hard wiring was done for the system before drywall. And then they were able to go back in and customize what they wanted to, to do on the finish side with the with the buyers, and uh, and then it's all centralized through the Wi-Fi system that they put in the basement, and it runs it runs through that, which is pretty cool. That's amazing. How many more of these are you planning on doing? Uh, hopefully some. Yeah, hopefully I've already got another one that's almost done. All right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What, do you, what is what is Mister James Danley of LuxuryUpdatedHomes.com working on right now? We have a ton of projects going on. So um, we have another one that's just like that house we sold that is framed. Siding's almost done. We'll have the painting done here in a couple of weeks. Uh, the finished exterior concrete work's being done this week. Drywall's done. We're priming for paint. All the trim and doors are there. So we're on the finished side of that one. That one's going to be done the next couple months. And since we're already at the end of the year, we'll probably wait until after the first to get it on market and, and sell it beginning next year. But so we've got that one, which is new construction. I have uh, two other large renovations 
going on. Another one we're buying this week that's a massive rehab. So I've got one on on Melbourne. This is in Cortland Lake Estates. Excellent location. And uh, on the acquisition side, I custom tailored the transaction around the seller and his needs. I mean, he he had some specific needs and, and privacy that he wanted to be respected. And, and uh, you know, I, I built a relationship with him over several months and then custom tailored the transaction around him. But with this house, it was in a great neighborhood. This is where a lot of the athletes live. Like uh, and Dominic and Sue, when he just got transferred to Miami, he lived a couple streets over. <clears throat> so his house uh, was listed and sold. And, um, Calvin Johnson lives in this neighborhood, Cabrera, um, oh, man, all those guys. Right. So it's a nice neighborhood. Though. Very good. Yeah. Neighborhood, yeah. yeah. And, uh, the position that we're in, this is a smaller lot where usually they want the bigger lots, bigger lots are very, very valuable. So new construction in this market, you usually can't buy anything for under a million, four million five. Um, and that would be a bare bones, basic stock house on a decent sized lot, but this has a lot smaller of a lot. It's a basic lot, but you can get in the neighborhood. So we, we ended up buying this house for 275 cash. And I, it was essentially lot value, pretty close to lot value. Um, because it was, it was a smaller lot. Most of the larger lots start at 450 and go up, but I bought a, you know, I got really good price in terms on it because I custom the tailored the transaction around his needs, how much he wanted for it, how he wanted to be structured. Um, and all that stuff. So he was very, very happy with how the transaction went. We got a good buy. And then this house, we essentially rebuilt it. I mean, we took, it was a brick colonial 1950s construction, great quality, but the floor plan, everything was obsolete. So we ripped the back of the house off, did a 12, 1300 square foot addition, gutted the entire floor plan, moved the front door over several feet to the right. So we could put a glass door on it. You have a you know clear line of sight through the house. Um, you got an office off to the right, stairs to the left, and then put a huge great room on the back of the home, built a mud room off the side, uh, great mud room, all the kids, hats, coats, boots, and stuff, built a full second floor laundry. And we converted it from like a three bedroom, one full, one bath and a powder room to four bedroom, three full bath powder room. And, uh, with all the function I got for the master bedroom, you've got two walk-in closets, a his and a hers, both are large walk-ins. Um, Beautiful bath, same thing, silker tub, shower, all that stuff. And uh, that house is almost done. We're in the finishing stages. We'll have it on market here in a few weeks. And it took a little longer to, to complete than we wanted. We had issues with with concrete, and we had to wait for permits and all that stuff for a long period of time. But So that one's almost done. Um, I've got another rehab. Wait, wait, wait. It's like, what's that going to be listed for? Seven seventy five, seven ninety nine. I'm trying to now. It's the end of the year, so it really should have gone to market at seven ninety nine. But I'm trying to get it sold and closed before year end, so it hits the financials this year. And so we're going to list it around seven seventy five and see if we can get it sold. Okay, quickly. Uh, but in that neighborhood, I mean, it's a great price point value. You're walking distance, yeah, for like to half, the school basically. for like half. Yeah. But it's, I mean, there's like no backyard, right? It's like a very small lot. You don't need a backyard. <laughs> I mean, they've got a little bit of a backyard, but it's, it's definitely it's a California house. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, postage yeah. stamp. But the location is really good. And the price point compared to the neighborhood is phenomenal. Yeah. You'll get somebody who'll snatch that up who wants to live next to Dominic for all the fancy yeah. lions. I don't know sports. So sorry, folks. A lot of business owners. And Cabrera. Stuff. I know that one. Cabrera. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'll get my sporting stuff. Right. Yeah. If, and in hindsight, if I could have been a little faster on the renovation, we should have went to market before school started and we would have had that thing instantaneously sold. Yeah. Because that location, the school, all the families that had kids for that were start wanted to start school in the fall 
we're rushing to move. I missed that by a couple of months, but we'll still do great on the product, I think. Just okay. not quite as well as we, we, we should have. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. What's the other one you're working on? Oh, we got a few. So um, we had another one in Glenhurst, which is also a great neighborhood. This one actually is just an interior remod. So we're keeping the existing structure of the house. We're redesigning the front facade quite a bit, siding, front porch overhang pillars. Um, great lot, but the interior floor plan was, was janked up. So we moved the location of the kitchen, created a large great room, um, leveled the floors out, and uh, added a second floor laundry to it. We're going to build that stackable into some closet space and then reposition the master suite so you've got a walk-in closet and a larger bath and added lighting like the house had terrible lighting so we're adding windows on multiple sides of the house that were not there before so we're changing the whole lighting opening up the floor plan um, and just doing a cosmetic interior renovation but with all the functional floor plan items without having to add square footage to the house and that gets time consuming because then you got to pour concrete and excavate and the city's more thorough on the prints yeah beg for permission to yeah. fix your house yeah so this is more of a quicker and simpler flip right it's it's not quite as in-depth as the one where you're ripping the back of the house off and was this one going to hit the market uh well in spring so we just started that we just bought it um not very long ago we just started demo we'll have a project planning meeting here in a couple of weeks once all the demos done with all the subs you got few of the guys lined up we'll get them all on our contract and then get rocking and rolling so hopefully we can get that done get it on market in february february march something like that how much for that one 799 799 yeah. okay yeah lower end yep now you've done 1.2 like 70 it's only 799 well we're putting like i'm in a sweet spot i mean i want to stay to where we build a phenomenal product and we're at an aggressive enough price that we can always sell the product very very quickly get cash back and and then i'm in a position where if the market does change and crashes again I'm in a neighborhood with mostly million dollar homes at 799. Buyers might move down the price bracket, but we'll, we're still positioned conservatively to where we can sell the asset. Well, I don't want to be, I don't want to reduce it too low, but economy crashes. People are still going to watch football and baseball. That's true. Those guys are still going to make millions of dollars. That's true. They're still going to need some place to live. So you've <laughs> kind of built in a little safety factor there, too. These are kind of people who don't need a mortgage. Yeah, they don't. No. And like 40% don't. of the bars pay cash. And these, yeah. like, it's crazy. That is crazy. And good. It is very good. Yeah. And, and the, the affluent, like the individuals who are talented, and you have a lot of business executives too for automotive suppliers, automotive companies that live in these neighborhoods. And I would say that's actually the majority of them are either business owners or executives. And uh, they're always in demand and they always move in and out. So they're, they're always coming into town. They're, they're living here for three, five years, and then they're moving back out. And that's the location where they want to live, the schools, the kids, while they're here. And so you always have turnover. So even in the, the down market, when it crashed, I mean, this they were still building houses like crazy in Birmingham, like every couple, you know every few streets. And there's always redevelopment going on. There's always buyers coming in and out. There's always sales in one day on market, zero days on market, five days, you know, like. Wow. Zero days on market. <laughs> that's, that's selling. That's Essentially selling sold before it's, you know, through the word of mouth. You make a few phone calls and it, before it goes on market, sold. That's the way to do it. And that's essentially what happened with Bloomfield Court. Yeah. Yeah. I w- I can't wait to see these pictures. I'm pretty excited about it. I am too, man. We'll do we'll do a video. We'll shoot it all up and get it. All oh yeah, so, share that with me. Because what I'll do is I'll put this in the show notes. So uh, if you're listening to this, check back. I don't know every couple of weeks or so, because once once he sends me these links, I'll put it in the show notes so you can see the kind of work he's doing and the kind of quality he's focusing <clears> on and 
how nice these homes are. I, I can't wait to see pictures. I've seen pictures of most of the other ones. I follow most of what you do. I haven't posted stuff in a while. I have like so many projects. I just don't. I don't post it. Been too busy too. Speaking of which, how do you manage all this? Like, do you have any software, or how do you keep track of project management? I got to get do a better job. I'm working on the systems right now. Like, it's so I've got my superintendent full time who's on all the job sites, and he's got 45 years of construction experience. I've got my financial controller who she is amazing. I mean, she's from the corporate world. Now she's got kids, so we give her a really good schedule, flexibility wise. A lot of times she can work from home. She comes in one to two days a week, uh, does all the financials, all the checks, and then she does almost anything else I ask her to do assistant-wise and, and help with resources and support, and she'll stop by job sites, and she'll do whatever we need her to help out with. But she's she's phenomenal, um, brilliant at finance, and she's just good at everything she does, and she's very good at, at, at organization and structure. So, And then I, I hired part-time uh, my dad on a contract basis because his background was uh, commercial constru- engineering and construction, and he's helping manage all of the uh, schedules and the budgets and all the bids because we've got so many projects going on right now. Like uh, George, who's my constru- construction superintendent, can't do all that stuff. I mean, he's got a full day just trying to get to six or seven projects and make sure all the guys are there, supposed to be there and solve issues. You know, on the construction side, he doesn't have time to do all the budgets and scheduling and then take bids and organize the the meetings. Uh, for taking the bids on all the projects. So so I've got those three employees, which are cool, the key. It's nice you get to hire your dad and bring him into the business. Yeah, and he's got a good skill set for it, too. Hell yeah. yeah. That would be perfect for him. I've always liked your dad. He's a good guy. Yeah, I've always liked your dad. It's cool you can bring him into the business, too. For sure. You're like, Dad, that's what I want. I want on Monday. <laughs> no, it can kidding. be challenging, though, to be buttheads a lot. Are you? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> You seem to be very good at overcoming a lot of these personality differences, though. How do you manage that? That's a good question. Um, I might have to just follow you around because I'm not so good with these personality differences. I'm not the best with it either. I don't tend to like conflict. Like that's George is a lot better at hammering the subs and just beating them up. I've gotten better at it over the last couple of years, but he's really good at it. And then as far as the personality difference, it's just it comes down to patience, I think. And long-term perspective, uh, uh, the way I approach it, I'm not sure exactly, to be honest with you. Yeah, you seem really good at it because a lot of things I would have a lot of serious challenges with, like personality differences for me, that's go, no go, and it really shouldn't be. I should be able to figure out a way around it, right? Right. And I just let it defeat me, you know, and I, I shouldn't do that. But you seem to have this knack for managing difficult personalities and still getting what you want and getting the project forward, so... I don't know. Maybe pay attention. It's challenging you sometimes. It. You don't always get the results you want. It takes time. So we're, we're redesigning the systems and the way we've got it formatted between George entering all the information and keeping us updated on all the projects daily and then having the schedules updated when you have changes and delays and then making sure we have all the contracts and all the paperwork in place for all these subs and all the insurances and stuff on all the projects. So, But it's it's really those three individuals that help orchestrate all that. Where then, is all? Is this all this information in one central location? Is it in software? Is we, got, it in paper? we use Dropbox heavily, and okay. then um, we do have back. We also have servers. Like my business partner has a huge office space above, um, in his, his massive home on Turtle Lake, and he has a whole section above the five or six car garage that's all office space, and they have servers there. So we back stuff up on the servers. They have their own private servers. And then um, we've got Dropbox and all that as well. And Kelly or- organizes all that because organization is not my skill set. Who's the enforcer 
who bangs the heads? Is that George? That's George. George crushes heads. these guys. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the part I don't miss about rehabbing. I haven't done a rehab in a long time, and I'm 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 not anxious to get back into it because I don't think I had a good rehab system. I managed hundreds of rehabs, but I think I could have done it a lot better <clears throat> and a lot less stressful. And all I can remember is just how stressful it was, and how angry I was all the time, mm-hmm. and how eight o'clock at a night and just get this done. It's bullshit. And yeah, it just drives me crazy. And it man. makes it worse if you've got a client involved. Like the spec stuff's not as bad because it's like, hey, we own the asset. If we're delayed a few days, like, yeah, it's co- I know how much money it's costing me per day. But I don't have someone who's like freaking out who I'm worried about ruining the business reputation or brand. Whereas if you've got clients involved, the stress level for me is like two times 10. And we're doing a handful of those projects. Well, you're doing nice stuff too. I was just doing shitty Detroit houses. I can only imagine the kind of detail you got. Oh, oh man. yeah. What is this? You call this? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever rehabbed before? I could just see George walking around. Like, I, I don't know how I would do it. Yeah. So the buyers on Bloomfield Court, we'll start, we're, we're finishing the basement for them. Um, and we're almost done with it. Like carpeting is going in right now. And it's been stressful to try to get that done while they moved into the house early oh, and then man. coordinating schedules and then. With the subs, because the marketplace right now, for 10 years, you had no construction. And all these guys that were in the business got out of it. No one was going into building trades. So a lot of the old guys are either retired or they moved on. And those that are left, the good ones, are so busy. They have so much work that they don't even show up to bid jobs. And so it is very challenging to get subs. And then when you do get good subs, they've got so many other projects going on. you got to schedule them and work them in and out. And it's hard to explain to your clients, like, hey, look – these are the two good guys I've got and they're booked on jobs for several weeks and they can't get here until then. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how busy it is and we can't find other guys to bid the work for us to, to replace them with. And you won't sacrifice quality because you can't, you can't learn the hard way afford to sacrifice quality. Yeah. And you have a lot of those guys too, where you bring them in and they're the only guys that are available and they're available for a reason because they're, they're crap and you got to fire them. That's no good. No, not when you're doing, 800,000 to $1.2 million yeah. houses. Shit better be done right. It better be perfect. And done the, right the first you, way. Yeah, you better get done. Yeah. Otherwise, you're waiting for weeks and throwing the whole schedule off. Yeah, I can see that might be stressful. You got yeah. a good yoga program going or a <laughs> meditation. Or, <laughs> Try to work out a few days a week and then get away on squeeze weekends. squeeze balls. I shut down, man, one day every week. Uh, like, you know I keep the Sabbath anyway. Yeah, every Saturday. Every, sev- every seven days. And... Um, I literally will just shut down business for 24 hours, man, and just focus on relationship with God, friends, family, decompress, de-stress, reset for the new week. And it is amazing what that does to your peace of mind. And then your performance is so much higher on those other six days because you're able to really refresh, reset, get your mind off of it, de-stress, and then go back at it. So I know you keep the Sabbath from Friday, sundown. Sunset to Saturday, sunset. Yeah. Yeah, So is Sunday your Monday? Kind of, yeah. It depends. Yeah, some days, a lot of times, I'm, I'm, I'll check on job sites, stuff like that. But it's football season now, so a lot of times, I'm, I'm having fun with the buddies, and I can do, you know, check, do email and computer stuff on Sunday and get prepped for the week a little bit. But, but Sunday's usually fun, refreshed day. Friday too. night to Saturday night, there's nothing, no business, no business yep. whatsoever. Okay, yep. that's a full 24 hours off, rest, relax, recharge. Yep. Do something different. Read have some peace, you know, peace and quiet without the phone going off every, you know, all day, every day. Yeah. 
Boy, that's a good problem to have, though, having a phone go off all day, every day. But it is stressful. <laughs> and true. I'm not mad at I don't miss managing uh, employees, that's for sure. I know I'm going to have to get back into it eventually, but I have some small idea what your headache's like. And I can only imagine it's worse when you're dealing with more zeros because people who like zeros <laughs> like attention to detail, too, right? Absolutely. That's how they got those zeros. So, a couple other cool projects, what we're talking about them. Um, and this goes back to the testament to my business partners as well. These guys have been great. So even through all of it and the stress and the challenges, um, I'm doing personal projects for them now. We're talking about doing some client remodels. So yeah. I didn't get into all of our spec projects we've got going on, but we've got a lot of those. And um, on the client remodel side, my, my my older business partner, who's the mentor role, Tom, he he loves flying, super passionate about flying. He's got several planes. So he has one that's like a um, eight-passenger private jet and they've got a he's got a full-time pilot even though he can fly it they've got a guy on staff that they flies him if they need to for the family or whatever and then he loves fighter jets so like he owns um, who doesn't jesus oh yeah he, he owns a jet i think it's an l39 I, I've, I've got to look it up i'm, I'm not big on planes he yet, owns but. a jet yeah oh yeah and it's like a fighter plane looks like a mig right and it's like <laughs> phenomenal handling like he just loves this thing he had a log don't um, piss him off he had to log a ton of flying time. So he had to, you have to log a lot of hours to get your pilot's license, the basic one. Then you have to get certified for each individual plane type. And for the fighter jet, he had to log like 200 hours with another pilot before he could fly it solo. And um, with jet fuel and stuff, these things are not cheap to fly. But he, no. he loves it. He's super passionate about like this, uh, the Cold War era fighter jets. And so he, he bought an airplane hangar. As like, you know, partially as a, as a, as a write-off and then they've got an organization he's involved with where they collect these old jets and they've got a couple that are like the only ones in the country and him and his buddies like pay so much per year to be in the organization and then they get certified on all the different jets and they can fly them. And so we renovated his airplane hangar for him. Dude, that's fucking awesome. It was very cool. So we went in and gutted this thing. It's got a bunch of office spaces. You rehabbed a hanger. An airplane hanger, yeah. That's awesome. Do you have any pictures of that? No. I'll, I'll have to go get some photos of it. Okay. Make sure it's okay with him, too. I don't want you to get deep shit, but yeah, that yeah. would be so cool to see. It's so cool, man, because they've got a full kitchen. Um, he's got a bunch of offices. He's got you know bedroom with pull-out couches, full bathroom. Like So if his guys, his buddies fly in, they can stay there over the weekend or for a night and then fly back out the next day. That's right. And he's got an office there, so he can work from his airplane hanger every day now. Loves that. And then we built like this this awesome man cave room, like off the side of the ha- airplane hangar upstairs, and and it's got leather couches and a flat screen, and it has uh, all kinds of booze and all just incredible whiskeys and all kinds of stuff. It's it's super cool. Sounds like a pretty awesome hobby to to fly. You need well, yeah. If you're gonna have jets, you need a hangar, right? Absolutely. Yeah, might as well be a nice hangar, right? So this is actually just your you're doing quality fix and flips and new builds so well that. You have people coming to you to actually renovate their own homes and redesign their own homes and apparently hangers too, right? Now it's, it's the business partners is what we've started with, right? Yeah. And uh, it is more stressful doing client remodels. So we did, we did Tom's airplane hangar for him, which turned out awesome. And he's super happy about it. And then now I'm working on my other business partner's personal residence. Him and his wife have a gorgeous home on uh, Gilbert Lake and this massive lot, beautiful sand, uh, sand beach by the water and weeping willow tree. But it's, uh, you know, above and below ground, it's probably just under 8,000 square foot. I mean, it's a big space above grounds, about 6,000. And, uh, we're gutting the floor plan, <coughs> redesigning the, 
the, the floor plan, you can you can see the lake from the back of the house, building a mudroom off the garage, and then just updating everything. I mean, we're redoing all the drive, the back porch patio area. Dude, that's a huge rehab. It's a massive rehab. Can you say how much or take a guess? Half a million. About seven hundred thousand. Yeah, I was gonna say it has to be huge because you're yeah. talking about a driveway. They're not just gonna let you pour concrete. It's gonna yeah. be something nice, right? Well, I mean, they're still doing asphalt, it's just so big. I mean, yeah. when you get into large square footage, I mean, fifty grand for a driveway. It's like fourteen thousand square feet too, between down and up, and that's a big rehab. Yeah, and then you've got you know all the hardwood flooring for the first floor, and we're not even renovating the whole house. I mean, the master suite's not really getting touched. We're just doing the main living space, and we did, or you know, we did the roof and um, some of the exterior stuff, but. Yeah, I mean, by the time you get into it, you got fifty thousand dollars in hardwood flooring and all that stuff. So it adds up. It adds up fast. So you went from a position where you lost a shit ton of money on a bunch of deals and got the look here, bud. Yeah, this is not going the right way. <laughs> These are the cold hard numbers sliding the paper over. You're either going to make me eat it or you're going to find a way to fix it. And you're like, dude, we're doing this, and I'm going to fix your shit, and you're going to love it. And that's where you are now. You're actually you've done it so well. They're like, we'll come rehab our house. Yeah. And and they they kind of want to they kind of want us to build that side of the business and I'm willing to for I think select clients because it, it adds another source of revenue when you do client remodels and you don't have all the cash out of pocket you don't have the market exposure and risk but at the same time it's so slow because like the decisions are always changing like with us with the spec stuff I control it hey here's our selections here's our finishes this is how we're designing this is how we're building it rock and roll when you've got clients involved every time the wife walks in the house and with it, her designer something gets changed. Something, something gets changed. I know I've been married a long time. I know how this works. So it's a forever process that gets drug out and it consumes more of your time. Then you have the stress too, where they're not used to dealing with contractors. I mean, they don't realize that guys screw stuff up and things have to be fixed all and the it's time. Their, it's their personal home, right? Their baby. So when you're trying to find new guys and, and stuff gets messed up and for us, it's easy. Hey, we're going to solve. We're going to fix it. They'll be fine, but they freak out over it. And then you got to deal with um, them being unhappy and, and it's very, very stressful. So I think, in certain circumstances, we might continue, can you continue doing some client remodels, but probably only on a referral basis, and they've got to be over $200,000 in renovation, really, for it to be worth our focus and our time. Maybe big names, to build your brand, because you, yeah. you seem that you're building a... That was one thing I wanted to come back to and talk about. I remember when you first started <coughs> Luxury Updated Homes, you wanted to build a brand. You were very brand-focused. You wanted high-quality work. You wanted to be known for doing high quality projects right and that was an emphasis from the beginning and i think maybe this might be a little offshoot you're doing such high quality work that of course people are going to want you to do other work right yeah which can be distraction too right it can and, it, and i really still love the spec stuff because we get to build it and brand it we and i we understand our target demographic well enough that we know what they want and we can build that product and they're willing to pay for it and it's so much smoother cleaner easier than um, having to do custom stuff that's very time intensive. But was well, there anything you need now, or anything you're looking for that maybe somebody would hear on this podcast and reach out? Or I love working with sellers. I, our, our main focus of the business, which we really haven't talked about at all, and um, how I acquire product is really customizing the transaction around sellers. So in the areas where I'm buying, you have a lot of estate homes, like or you have individuals who are older who needs to tra- who need to transition to retirement, and They've you know acquired a lot of equity in this house, but they need flexibility. And the, the house usually is run down. So 
They've had difficulty maintaining it over the last 10 or 15 years. They know it needs a ton of work. They know it doesn't meet the functional elements of buyers today. And the real estate agents come in and tell them, hey, you need to put 50 grand into this house and clean it up if you want us to be able to sell it quickly. And also, as soon as you sell it, you're going to have to get out. So you have to move 40 years worth of stuff out of your house, clean it out, put some of it into storage, and then transition somewhere else. And if they're waiting for a condo to be built or they're waiting to get into a specific apartment complex or retirement community they want to be in, they're on a waiting list, they need flexibility around the transaction. For closing date, they need to be custom tailored to them. And so that's how we buy most of our product. I'm a relationship guy, and you know that. I love working with people. I love meeting people of all backgrounds, and it's amazing to me. I especially love individuals who have lived in these communities who have had successful careers, and they've raised families, and now they're in there. 60s, 70s, 80s, and I get to hear stories about their lives and like where they came from and what they've accomplished. And so that's the main focus of my business and my role in the business is building relationships with those individuals and going into it from a perspective of, hey, so if this transaction and the sale of your home could go exactly how you want it to go, you know, what would it look like? And they're like, well, my condo is going to be done this date, so I need flexibility in the transaction. And here's really how much I want to net from the deal. This is the price I want for the house. Can you pay it? And if I can pay it, here we can pay it. If we have to structure it creatively or I can't pay cash, we, I, I find a solution to meet their needs and and, and uh, help them position it to, to where the transactions for their best interest and it, and it meets all their needs and they're very happy with the deal after it's done. And um, so majority of the product we buy now, I've got a ton of stories, but I meet with individuals, build a relationship, figure out what they want, and then we customize the transaction around them. And a lot of times it's a long-term deal where you know, you build a relationship over six months or whatever, and they need um, time to transition six, eight months, whatever it is. And um, we help them through these. I, I've got friends and contacts, they, the estate sale process, getting everything out. And a lot of times they're embarrassed. Like they don't want people to go through the house and see the condition that it's in. You know, they're, they're, they're prideful and they know they got to clean through all the stuff and or they're just tired of maintaining it. And um, they've gone through their different circumstances. So I just love building relationships that are sincere, that are genuine, and then creating a handcrafted transaction around it. And if we can do it to where, if I can make it work where the numbers will work for us, then I will. And if we can't, I'll figure out what the best options are for them, get them the referrals to the right individuals, or help them get their product you know, marketed and sold to somebody else and figure out what that end solution is. So the one thing that I do always need is product and referrals Absolutely. for product products. where though Birmingham primarily Birmingham Bloomfield Hills I mean I'll buy anything in Oakland County it's just those are the the main areas that I really really target right now it's a f- core Birmingham Beverly Hills Bloomfield Hills um, but anything in the Woodward corridor or central Oakland County I would look at and consider if someone wants to me to take a look at it and you have handcrafted high customer service seller you, you've been doing this you will figure out a way to make it work for them. You'll figure Absolutely. out a way. Okay. Yeah. So that's luxuryupdatedhomes.com, luxuryupdatedhomes.com, 734-308-0109. Highly recommend James Danley. I know him personally, have for a long time. He will take care of you. The future looks exciting too. What does the future hold? I know we talked about it a little bit before, but what's the future of luxury updated homes and James Danley look like? So right now, I, I think that We've got a pretty good business model. I've got to refine my processes to where I can build and renovate these houses faster. That's really what I'm focused on right now is schedules 
and subs. If I can start cranking these things out faster, I'm starting to build some more banking relationships too for more capital. And uh, with this business, I really only need to do, if I can get this up to where we're doing between seven and 15 transactions a year, I'll have a really good business that's maintainable. It's not that large, but we can do, you know, 15, $20 million a year in gross sales and revenue, make good money on it. And then I can take that cash and shift it into buying and holding assets for myself, right? Building the asset column. And, and so the next steps are, I need to build the infrastructure for this business and hire the right employees to where we can manage and maintain, you know, seven to 10 spec projects a year, maybe a handful of of other renovations. And then I can use this company to renovate my own personal holdings. So I need to generate some more cash reserves for myself and then start buying some single family homes, but I'd really like to shift into multifamily. I see like apartments, apartment buildings. Yeah. Yeah. So I see, I see a huge demand where along the Woodward corridor here in Michigan, if you, if you know it, I mean, you've got Royal Oak and Birmingham and Ferndale and you've got good schools, great downtowns and all the young affluent kids want to live in those areas. But a lot of the apartment buildings are old, they're dated, they're in poor condition. The layouts and floor plans don't really work for luxury kids. updated apartments. It's still going to be luxury updated homes. Okay. Keep the same brand. Keep the same brand. Most but you're going to apply the Birmingham brand to yes. yep. apartments. Yeah. I love so it. I want to go I love in it. and start meeting with these the guys that are that are older that have owned these apart- small apartment buildings for 30 or 40 years. They own them free and clear. Now they want to retire, move down to Florida or wherever and you know, sale and they don't, if they cash out, they got to pay a ton of capital gains in this, this property. And then where are they going to stick their cash in the market with risk of, of losing it. So a lot of these deals we can probably sell our finance or the sellers are going to want to sell our finance them because that way they have residual cash flow. They can move to Florida. They're making just as much money as they were before on their apartment building. They no longer have to manage it. They're essentially the bank. I'm writing them a check every month for the mortgage. And then we can go in and, and do you know several hundred thousand dollars worth of renovation to a building, open up the floor plan between the kitchen and the living space, add more closet space for the master, do good design finishes, and then get a rental premium with a wait list for clients that want to live in a great building that, that's maintained, that's designed well, in good locations. So that's the next phase is use luxury updated, keep doing the residential homes, and then start buying some apartment buildings and use that company to do the renovation work on it, contract it to luxury updated. And do it till they start stamping Danley on the side of everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's possible. I don't know if I'm going to build my own name into the brand at or all. something, right? Like, yeah, luxury they, updated homes. They want to put luxury updated homes on everything nice. If they see it, they'll be. They want to be at the wait list. Yeah, if, they, if it's a luxury updated homes building or house, they know the product, the design, the floor plan. We're going to use the best designers in the country to consult on it and. And whether you're going to lease from us or buy from us, the product is going to be phenomenal in great locations. Well, the cool thing about the seller financing, too, is they have that as an asset. And obviously, they already like the asset or they wouldn't have bought it and held it for years. Exactly. Right? So, hey, and they know the money's secured. Yep. So. <laughs> and you're going to go put in a, invest a ton of your own money into it. To make it even better. To make it even better. Yeah, I can see why that might be appealing. The so future that's looks the next bright. business model, yeah. yeah. That's the next business model we want to shift into. <clears throat> So the future looks bright. So this section we're going to transition into kind of success habits and it's all encompassing thing, you know, books you've read, ways of thinking, uh, how to approach things long-term, short-term, anything you think is important for being successful in business. So 
I know we started, we talked a little bit about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Obviously, that was a book that had a big influence on you. But what are the books, podcasts, blogs, people, philosophies, everything that's had an impact on your success where you think is important? I should have made a list before I came to this meeting. That's okay, man. A lot of them from several years back. I don't remember the names of all the books. But uh, yeah, so I read almost all the stuff that Kiyosaki has written. And I love Donald Trump's books. Um, a lot of people don't like his personality per se, but his his books, his background, his track record, the detail of the projects he's done are absolutely incredible. So I know his background very, very well. Uh, one of my favorite books is actually written by George Ross. It's called Trump Strategies to Real Estate. Um, so like I think it's tips for the small investor, but it's by George C. Ross. George Ross was Trump's one of Trump's main attorneys and advisors, but he also worked with Trump on opposite sides. He was had represented clients who were in opposition to Trump, who then became actually allies. And um, he goes through some of his most difficult transactions, and it's just how incredible he he. There were so many deals in New York that everyone failed. Like, like massive real estate developers who were very experienced worldwide came in. Could not get done properly, lost money on. Trump would come in, was persistent, regardless of the time frame. He always made them a success, made them work. And he had some transactions that were so complicated. I mean, he had to negotiate zoning rights for like ever, or like uh, air rights from every single property all the way down the street. He had to like work with city officials, he had to convince politicians to be on his side. Um, he had to, to work with, he, sometimes he was, buying, he was buying an asset, he had to have the the owners of the asset were who were a large company that was going bankrupt and the, and the president get on board with the deal. He had to convince the city to give him tax credits to make the deal work. And then he had to bring in and hire a hotel manager because he had no experience in it. One of the best convinced them to be involved in the deal. And he had like at any point in time, if any one of these five parties did not agree that like the deal would have been done, but he just refused. And, and George Ross told him going in, he's like, this is, this is never going to work. Like you're not going to make this deal happen. And he stuck it through and he negotiated, sold, built the vision, got everyone on board, handled the transaction strategically, and then ended up coming out redeveloping that whole area of New York and like changing uh, the momentum in that section of the city. He's done that on so many occasions. It's just incredible, his background and his ability to overcome adversity. And then coming from like the largest financial turnaround in history, I mean, he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest financial comeback in history. And he was so far under that uh, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, same day, run stories. He's wiped out. He's over a, He's uh, like $15 billion in the hole. He's personally liable for $1 billion of it. And there's no way he can ever come back. He's, he's done. He's finished. And he never, through all that, he never declared personal bankruptcy. And people get confused. He had four entities. The entities themselves went through bankruptcy. But they were all in Atlantic City casino entities he sold the majority of the ownership stake out of all those entities before the market crashed had foresight to do so made all of his money but the entities still had his brand even though he had minor ownership stake in them and they had to go through chapter 11 to survive restructure debt structure so that the employees could keep their jobs otherwise they would cease to exist right so you always have the liberals who want to hate on him saying he's haters gonna hate man he's declared bankruptcy but when he was in the hole, he could have declared personal bankruptcy, but he did not. He restructured all of his personal debt obligations and he built his way back out of it to profitability. And mentally, I think that takes a lot of mental stamina. I don't know if that's something that I could have done looking at, you know, walking down the street and 
he talks about how he remembers like a beggar who's asking for money. And he's like, wow. He's like, that guy's actually richer than I am. I'm $1 billion <laughs> in the hole. Negative personally. They like to ignore that. <laughs> so all Trump's books are great. George Ross, uh, that strategies to real estate, I think is my favorite because it's like a case study book. He goes through case study by case study of the complexity, of the deals and the lessons to be learned from them. Brilliant book. Um, I'm reading the autobiography of Andrew Carnegie right now. Phenomenal. His background story coming over as a small kid to the U.S. and then building the steel empire and being one of the most influential individuals in developing the U.S. infrastructure with steel and buildings and bridges and uh, his character, his values that he had in the perspective of just a different era that's now lost. And it was those values that made him so successful and his work ethic from a very young age. Um, yeah, we need a work. We need a campaign for work. As silly as that sounds, uh, and I don't want to make this political, but damn it, nothing's free. No matter – I'm not right or left. I'm no, right? So, <laughs> but there's nothing free, and everything is about production. And if people stop producing, well, I'll freaking die. Absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with work, folks. It won't hurt you. It won't kill you. Sometimes you have to work for free. I've worked for free. I've worked for I've worked and paid. Have you worked and paid? Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> it sucks. You don't want to do it too often, but you make big enough mistakes, sometimes you uh you have to do that. I I've been doing that for several years now. Mm-hmm. And I will have to do it for several more and I don't begrudge any of it, right? We need a works program. We don't need to We should be a little ashamed we do, but you know what? We do need that. I would agree completely with that. I don't know if it's lost but it's certainly camouflage right now. It's hard to see through the the bullshit. It's like they just throw up so much bullshit in the air that you're trying to find what's actually real and what's not. Yep. And I would I would agree with that. And Albert think- Hubbard said, "Get your happiness out of your work. If you love what you're doing, if you find where your passions and your skill sets fit, then it's it's positive. It's it's beneficial. You enjoy it. it should make you feel better. I love life. work." And I get tired of apologizing for it. Don't you? Like, oh, you work too much, man. Fuck you. Yeah, dude. What do you mean? You sit around and watch TV too much. <laughs> you know? You, you, you look at the park. I don't know. What is wrong with work? What is wrong with being productive? What is wrong with solving problems, right? Not a damn thing. Absolutely. Right? It needs to be flip-flopped. Being lazy should be dishonorable. Yeah. That's the way it used to be. I don't know what now happened Now it's the there. opposite. It's like people want to be lazy and skate by or screw the system or like and somehow that's cool or like edgy or – there's nothing honorable it. about that. If you're not producing, if you're not enhancing the lives of those around you and building something, you need to reanalyze your life priorities. Yeah, and I'm not saying you have to do it all the time or we all start in the same place. But it should be something, I don't know, somebody should sit down and go, look, not doing anything is of no value. And it leads you to unhappiness. The people yeah. that are the most miserable are the ones that are not doing something productive. Well, yeah, guess what? If you have a shitty job and <clears> your job is going nowhere, or I can only imagine what it's like to work for the government. I oh. mean. Can you imagine how soul crushing that has to be every day to like <laughs> fight through all that bullshit? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you. I'm glad you're there. I'm glad we're getting things done. I'm glad, but you're not probably not very happy. And there's ultimate layers of BS. I'm getting sidetracked. Sorry, sorry. We're talking about <laughs> political rant. Yeah, it's not political. It's it's. Uh, there's nothing wrong with work, folks. Don't work 100 hours a week unless you have to. If you have to work 100 hours a week, work 100 hours a week. Don't listen to what some idiot will tell you. Like balance man have balance when you can get balance in the meantime work especially if you come from a disadvantaged background it's unfortunate it's unlucky you shouldn't have been born into a disadvantaged background you know what 
fucking cowboy up. It's the reality of your life, and the only way you're going to get out is a shit ton of work. And ain't nobody going to give you shit. They'll steal shit and keep it for themselves <clears throat> and say they'll help you, but they're not actually going to give it to you. And you, if it was given to you, it would be of no value anyway. So, all right. What, what other books are you reading? Oh, let's see here. Uh, or no, when you wake up, do Napoleon you wake, Hill, all those books are... Oh, that's right. Man, he's got a ton of books that are phenomenal across the board. Um, As a Man Thinketh by James Allen is a great book. Very small, old school read. I don't know if it's eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. Written, but phenomenal book. And it's, it's, uh, it's all about mental focus, perspective, um, the power of thought on our environment, our circumstances, our happiness, and the spiritual laws in place. You know, law of attraction type stuff, but it's in more detail and he goes into every component of your life, spiritually, physically, relationships, gives great examples. It's well written. And when you go through challenging times, which you know this as much as I do, when you're in a dark place or you have a lot of stuff that goes bad and then you've got to build out of it, sometimes the hardest thing is is psychologically overcome yourself, right? And the negative thoughts that constantly get planted in our mind to destroy us or to stop us from progressing. No, I've absolutely been defeated. I've absolutely been defeated and I'm not ashamed to admit it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I think everyone has at some point or another and yeah, and that's a book that really has helped me reposition my thoughts and has helped me the last couple of years to, to focus more on positive visual, visualization and f- focusing the solutions on building out of it, keeping focus on faith as opposed to taking in all the negatives like, oh, this isn't going to happen. The next thing is going to go wrong. It's tough when you have a lot of things that go wrong back to back to back to back to back and some of which don't even feel like your fault. A lot of times they aren't. Uh, it's very easy to become negative and to, to start doubting and to stop believing in that long-term vision. But we, we've got to have control and we got to at least learn from that experience to control our thoughts and try to rebuild. And I'm still doing it. I mean, it's been tough. I still struggle with that. Um, some days, some weeks, some months when there's a lot of stuff going wrong and you know, you got to, you're overexposed and, and uh, you got a lot of numbers, you got employees and all that stuff going on. But that's been the biggest lesson I've had to learn in the last couple of years building out of that hole was just the mental fortitude and it's not always easy but As a Man Thinketh is a great book for it um, on a tr- side note I had to I realized I had to accept responsibility for everything in my life that doesn't mean I did it but that was how I got out was I said it's mine to deal with nobody else is going to deal with it cowboy up do it and I think that was leading in what you're talking <laughs> about you know it doesn't feel like it's your fault. It doesn't matter if it's your fault. Mm-hmm. You got to deal with it, right? Yeah. That's what I'm doing, folks. So, um, Trump Never Give Up is a great book for dark times. He goes through a lot of his uh, case studies and the challenges and how he didn't give up and how he built back from being billiards in the hole and coming back from it. That's a phenomenal book to read if you're, if you're going through challenging times. I might go look that up. What about do you wake up the same time every morning? Do you have a fitness regime? Um, you know, my schedule is a little more flexible now. I switch it up. Like some days I work out in the morning, depending on the schedule. Some days I've got early AM meetings and I just can't. I mean, I've got to be up at five thirty to prep. I've got project planning meeting by eight o'clock, and then it goes for three hours, and so I got to work out in the, in the afternoons. Um, and some days you just need to rest on like Sunday and sleep in and re- recoup from the week, right? So. Um, the schedule is flexible based on the week. And uh, as far as the morning routines, I'm not a morning guy. I've had to develop into it because the business, it's just necessary. 
But uh, one thing I do listen to, I listen to uh, Marketplace, which is a station on Slacker. Because for me, I'm always like very dreary in the morning, like like groggy in the morning. Like I have to get my mind going. It takes me a while to wake up and become clear. And so my alarm goes off. Usually try to roll out of bed, do some push-ups, pull-ups, get some energy going. I'll throw on Marketplace, which talks about business and economics and like the world and what's going on. And they do interviews and stuff like that. And uh, this last week they had an hour-long interview with one of the Koch brothers. He's 80, I think he's almost 80 years old now. Wait, you mean the evil Koch brother who's just single-handedly destroying the lives of minorities all across the world and destroying democracy? Or wait, is that not actually what's happening? It, yeah, the interview's amazing, man. I mean, he's just such a down-to-earth like guy. Yeah. And he talks about his background and his dad and like how... I know he gives a lot to charity, too. A ton, and how their whole business model is about benefiting and building solutions that are beneficial to other people like that's his entire business model and and uh, they do a ton to try to help um the lower class and to, and to make sure that there's an environment where people can come out of and build out of um challenging situations and overcome adversity and and view it as a as an opportunity but the interview alone i mean if, if you think he's an evil bad guy just go listen to the hour hour and a half interview i mean it will change your brain he's just a I look at the seems evidence. like a genuine guy. Absolutely amazing. Anybody can get on salon.com and write a fucking hit piece. Yeah. They're dumbass with $100,000 and student debt and couldn't sell a pencil if their life depended on it. We'll get on and talk about how somebody's ruining somebody's life. Yeah, they can go shove it up their ass. I get so tired of that stuff. Mm-hmm. There's so- plenty of facts out there, folks. Just try and find some look at the evidence and i'm not saying you maybe he did something you didn't like but you don't know it you just know what yeah. some dumb shits wrote about it who's yep. 23 and go to the it. source make a judgment when you get to know the person themselves yeah, absolutely i could tell you some of the stuff said about me so a lot of it is true um and a lot of it isn't true and that'll yeah. be something i would love to do in two and a half years and tell do a tell all kind of thing there's certainly a lot i um i need to be held accountable for but you, when you're only getting one part or one small part or even lies about it, sometimes, you know, you just got to look a little deeper. That's all I'm saying. And uh, so that's Marketplace on Stitcher. Uh, Slacker. Slacker Radio, yeah. Slacker Radio. And Marketplace is the station. They just do business news and, and economics and stuff like that. And uh, they have that hour-long interview on there right now. It's on the website, too. Okay. A little over an hour. Kai Rizdahl, I think, is the guy that did the interview. I'll grab that, and I'll make sure to put that in the show notes, folks. Very and, good. And I'll start listening to it, too. I'll put it on. <clears throat> man i'm really glad you came down for the podcast thank you very much i had a great time i know i'm gonna be respectful of your time we're at two and a half hours right now i know i could probably <laughs> go for another hour but i know you got shit to get done folks james danley luxury updated homes.com luxury updated homes.com 734-308-0109 yeah, that website doesn't get updated very often. You might want to check the Facebook, but I'll I'll get I'll get on that eventually. Check the face. <laughs> I'll put your. Do you want your personal? Do you have a luxury updated homes for Facebook? Yeah, there's a, there's a Facebook page. I will find that and I will put that link in there too because you you kind of like don't do for a young man you don't do the social media. I don't, man. I, I don't really have time. And right now, it, where where my business model is, it doesn't really benefit me. Can you do me a favor. Yeah, go get a Twitter account. Oh, Just not one. Yet. I can't. I'm on information overload already, man. I'm trying to like purge. <laughs> I'm not saying use it. Just go get your. Have you tried to get your name? Uh, I don't. I don't know if I have or not. Go look tonight. Of course, yeah. Available. Just go get it. And don't do. Anything I might have with stolen it. the name. I just don't ever use it or get on it. Okay, that's all I want. Several make sure. years ago, whether you use it or not, just make sure you have it so some somebody else doesn't have it. I'm really glad you came out. Came out. Um, 
I really appreciate it. Luxuryupdatedhomes.com. And I will put some, I will find his Facebook page. I'll put it in the show notes so you'll have it. And um, as he develops it, I'll go back and put it in the show notes too. Well, thank you for coming out and uh, check out, check out what he's doing, guys. And I'll make sure when he gets me the pictures too, some of these big projects he's working on that I will put it in the show notes when I get it. So check back often and I will post when he does it as well. Go to facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. I will post it there. Um, and I'll also post on, on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. I'll share it when he gets me those pictures as well. Jeremy, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Uh, love you guys, all the investment community, all the guys out there hustling, trying to uh, improve their lives and share success stories and uh, grow and develop. So thanks for having me in, man. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know there are a lot of distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, bad parents, bad economy, a lot of things preventing you from starting or continuing your goals. You know what? Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you close to your goals, even if it's one step. Go to renegadedetroit.com, renegadedetroit.com. Go to meetup.com forward slash investors. Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. Don't give up, folks. Do something every day that gets you close to your goals. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your attention, and I'll catch you guys on the next podcast. Until then, crush it.